It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 72 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my main man with the plan, my tag team championship partner in podcasting himself, the J. Jerry Bajoris. What's going on, the J? Episode 72. Hey, Elot, the J is S and V'd up, swole and vascular as I should be here on the What's Real podcast. And I'm not going to do a long opening promo this week because we got a mountain of a show. Yeah, it's uh, it's a massive show this week. Uh, of course, we're going to be talking some A&E biography once again in the series of professional wrestling. This week, The Ultimate Warrior, which there's going to be a lot of talk on the show about over the next uh, few weeks. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, we're going to head on down to the last drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Griggs for some maniac cop goodness this week as... Uh, on the show, he had 1988's Maniac Cop and the sequel from 1990, Maniac Cop 2, both directed by Bill Lustig. Uh, also, more wrestling. Uh, we're going to head on over to the dark side of the ring this week for WCW's Collision in Korea, uh, the biggest pro wrestling show in the history of the world, and it happened in North Korea. So we'll get into that later in the show. And that's not it. Also, we are going to take a look at a brand new movie straight to Netflix last weekend. Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead starring WWE's Batista. So I guess it's like, you know, we got wrestling segments, movie segments, and then a segment where wrestling and movies kind of smash up into one. Uh, and of course, we're going to be talking some goofs and much, much more. So, uh Let's just get into it. The J, a lot of stuff about wrestling this week, Um, specifically the news that AEW is switching um, from TNT over to TBS, the other turn-in network. Uh, They are moving uh, as of January 2022 uh, because of the deal with the NHL and, of course, because of, you know, they have an existing agreement with the NBA two nights a week that is not going anywhere. So it's probably a better move uh, for AEW. They'll be able to get in front of more eyes. I believe uh, TBS is in around a million and a million and a half more homes than TNT is right now, which is kind of weird to think about. But uh, that's how that is. And, uh, you know, they won't get preempted and shit for sports. So that's probably a good move. And it also uh, gives them a quarterly special on uh, TNT. Uh, So that's four times a year. And kind of like the way WCW used to do Clash of the Champions, that that kind of idea, maybe, I hope. And a brand new hour long, because recently TNT executives wanted to extend Dynamite to three hours. Tony Khan said no, but he was able to parlay that into another uh, hour show on Friday nights that they're going to be doing as well. So AEW, moving networks, expanding a little bit their television universe, uh, which I think is definitely a good thing, because I don't know about you, I don't watch their two shows that are on YouTube. I don't watch Dark and I don't watch whatever the other one's called. I don't even know what it's called. Yeah, no, I don't either. But yeah, this is this is a good lateral move. I mean, I think it's it's going to be necessary uh, as you covered, hey, you know, with the NHL. Uh, but also, uh, Brett White uh, was uh, interviewed for this, uh, the rap article that I was using as a reference. And he says that uh, the move had to do with, uh, you know, sure, the NHL had something to do with it. 
It's the TNT, TBS, and True TV boss. Uh, the NBA had something to do with it. The new college schedule with a ton of preemptions. And so we look to where we believe the consumer is going to be and where wrestling fans are going to be. We want to give them the most opportunity to consume as many shows as possible. We felt TBS had an opportunity really to be the network and the best platform for expansion. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense because uh, as we were discussing there, TNT is getting pretty crowded between NHL, the NBA and college games. So uh, this is a really smart move. And yeah. And TNT has a lot of their own like first run, like primetime programming and stuff that is very highly rated too. So like they're not willing to move some of that stuff around. Like just for example, because I know it's something that you watch and that I watch that's coming back here soon is like Animal Kingdom. Like they have big long term investments for television shows and stuff too right. for TNT, where TBS doesn't have that kind of stuff going on on the network. Yeah, and the, it was unveiled uh, not too long ago that, as you had mentioned, hey, Ed, the new hour-long series is going to be called AEW Rampage and is set to debut Friday, August 13th at 10 p.m. So that's, that's a pretty unique time frame for a wrestling show. Dude, I think that's the best thing about this because uh, I don't think anybody wants to see them kind of doing any sort of competition on Friday nights with SmackDown. Uh, they're not going to win no matter what they do because SmackDown's on broadcast television. So that's a whole other animal. Um, Again, smart. But yep. it, it it plays into the Friday night wrestling night kind of thing, which is, is fun. I, I like stuff like that. I think 10 o'clock works better because it does give you, like, dude, we're older now. It's not like on Friday nights we're out till 4 a.m. every week. So, like, there is a possibility that on a Friday night where you might have something to do, that like being home at 10 is fairly reasonable to be able to achieve if you wanted to watch this or something. Speak for yourself. Oh. Hey, uh, the Jay's still a party animal. You know that. Yeah, I'm I'm not at all. Fuck that. I'm completely being sarcastic. Yeah, very sarcastic from the Jay. There's old, old daddy Warbucks over here. I don't know whether to shit or wind my wristwatch, as they say. So uh, I'll pass on most of that stuff these days. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing for them. And, uh, you know, only time will tell, but I think they're going to have a little bit more freedom on TBS. And plus, TBS has a little bit more cachet, uh, in my opinion, with, as far as having like a uh, legendary like wrestling channel kind of legacy to it. I mean, I know Nitro and shit was on TNT, but like, you know, TBS had Saturday night for decades. They had Thunder. They had, you know, there's Clash of the Champions. Like there's a ton of wrestling legacy on TBS. So I think that kind of stuff could be fun, too. So, uh, but that's not it in the world of AEW. Uh, of course, uh, this upcoming Sunday, uh, as you guys are listening to the show, they have a pay-per-view double or nothing. It's, uh, it takes place on May 30th, obviously at Daly's place in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, and it's interesting because this is going to be the second time ever. There's been a stadium stampede match. Um, but, you know, this is going to be a cool show. So let, let's take a look at the show, The J. Let's see what you think here. Uh, first up, uh, we're going to have the uh, tag team titles here. The Young Bucks defending against Moxley and Eddie Kingston, who've been teaming somewhat regularly the last few weeks. They kind of shot them up the card. Uh, I get it. Whatever. Um, I think this will be a fun match, uh, believe it or not. I, I kind of like it, too, because Moxley's been doing too much of the same shit to me. So this is a way just to have him do something totally different. Um, and plus, him and Eddie Kingston, they're friends in real life. I think that this is kind of a cool angle to do. Um, and I don't know if you saw this, the Jay. Did you watch Dynamite last week? 
Yeah. Okay. So did you see whenever they had the uh, the whole deal with Kingston and them come out and like beat up the yeah. Young Bucks? And did you see what they did to them at the very end of it? Uh, I might have missed that. I can't think offhand. Enlighten me. Okay. Hey, so did you notice the shoes that the Young Bucks were wearing in this match? Oh, okay. It came back to me. Yeah, the, there the you go. Uh, Raider, Raider the, color ones. No, the Dior's. Oh, were they the Dior's? Okay. Yeah, they they were both wrestling in the Dior Jordans. So, like, there's a lot of people out there who might not understand this. These are shoes that are legitimately, if you have the high top ones, they're they're probably worth close to twenty thousand dollars, and the low top ones are really close to like ten or twelve. Legitimately, like these are designer shoes. It was a big collaboration, uh, but. The match ended up with uh, the Young Bucks getting choked out by Moxley and, of course, Eddie Kingston. And as Dynamite's going off the air, you see Eddie Kingston taking their Jordans off and leaving with them, <laughs> which I got a pop. Yeah, out I didn't of catch me, the, so. the Dior's. Oh, that's unreal. Yeah, because they've been doing that lately. Like, I've noticed that recently with them is like they've really upped their game on the shoes that they're wrestling in. Like, they've been wrestling in Jordans and shit for a while. But like they've like they had the Chicago ones, the band ones, like they were doing it every week. And I noticed that, you know, like they'd go to a commercial break and they always do the picture in picture on Dynamite. Like there was for a couple of weeks in a row, that's when they would be like with their feet up on the ropes, like showing their shoes and shit. Yeah. Point. So like I, yeah. <laughs> so like I thought that was kind of cool that they do that. And then plus, you know, to, to have it lead to something like this as a sneakerhead, I got a fucking kick out of it. So what can I say? Uh, but yeah, this should be a cool match, man. I, I don't, I don't think the Young Bucks are going to be losing the titles or anything. This is probably, if anything, going to be for like more angle development or something. But I think this could be a pretty decent match, something different. I like the aspect as well, where the Bucks are now as kind of like top heels in the company, especially as a tag team. And then yep. you have Moxley and Kingston that are kind of the hardcore guys, and they're the faces in this situation. So that's kind of an unusual thing with with the Bucks being the heels and Moxley and Kingston being the faces. So that yep. adds like a unique slant to it, which which is cool. And you know the Bucks are on a hell of a run, which which is smart for them to do. Like give them a, a long title run. They've had the tag team titles in AEW since November in the Full Gear pay per view. So. They're slowly closing on a year run with the belts, and I could see them having them keep it for years, you know, as long as nobody's injured and things like that. You know, I like yeah. those long runs, especially in modern professional wrestling. And I'm sure that the Bucks are going to end up retaining here with, uh, you know, probably some interference from Callis and the Good Brothers and the whole storyline that they're they're doing with Moxley and Kingston. One good thing I can say that they've done with the Young Bucks is this: they've been wrestling a lot, you know, since they won the tag belts. They defend them all the time. But they do this thing where they kind of like give shots to like younger teams, random teams. And they're those are like easy wins for the young bucks to pick up on and like and a good way to get like a good tag match on dynamite, right? But here we are, like you yep. said, they're closing in on a year. But like look how many teams they've purposely kept them away from. Like I've noticed there's like a Twitter thing going on with uh fucking what do you call them? Like the revival. I forget what they call them now, but you know who I'm talking about. And they keep complaining about how they're not getting tag shots. And they were like, dude, we were the dominant team around here. And then, like, we lost the belts and we haven't got a shot again. So they've done a good job keeping the Young Bucks in matches and winning and shit like that, but not exhausting their whole division. And that that goes into one thing that I think is one of the main highlights of the current AEW product from week to week 
is how well paced they are with everything. And that goes right hand in hand with what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, it's at least for me, like, I don't know how, you know, a lot of people feel about that specifically, but I think for like what I expect out of pro wrestling, like I have patience. I don't need everything to pay off like constantly and shit like that. They seem to do it pretty, pretty much to my liking. Like I'm, I'm, everything's not perfect, but things are better. You know, it's more positive than negative, I guess. Yeah, and again, we're we're in the older fan demographic and lifelong wrestling fan things, as as we always say in the podcast, aging ourselves as early forty year olds, and it's uh maybe just our cup of tea, and maybe the younger generation, you know, the millennials and everything, with the no attention span generation, basically, not to generalize, but a, a lot of younger kids, you know, maybe they would completely disagree with us, but. I think from our perspective, we definitely like somewhat of a slower burn with our pro wrestling. Uh, and I think AEW's pace has, has been really good from week to week and building up to the pay-per-views. Absolutely. So uh, one thing I kind of noticed here, just going through the show, and it's you, you'll see as we move along here that it's a, it's a running theme here. Not a whole lot of singles matches on this show. Yeah, uh, for they, sure. They, good point. They do have them. Don't get me wrong, but like, that's not the, the overall theme here. So, uh, up next, the match I was going to talk about is another tag match. This is not a cinematic match. They've gone out of their way to say that, uh, which I think is good to kind of let people know. Uh, we have sting stepping into the ring for the first time in six years since he was injured in his match against Seth Rollins, uh, and Darby Allen are going to team up against the team of Scorpio sky and Ethan page. Uh, this should be cool. I'm looking forward to it. I don't really know what to expect or uh, to to get any sort of an ending. I feel like this is just going to be a continuation of a storyline. So it's not going to be anything mind blowing. It's just going to be kind of your chance to see Sting wrestle again and, you know, maybe do a couple cool things. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, of course, that's going to be the highlight of this match, seeing Sting come back, like you mentioned, first time in like six years. And I like I like the storyline on this. This has been built up well. Um, Ethan Page has come into AEW strong, which is good. You know, the more strong heels you have, the better your overall product's going to be with the faces, of course. And then, yep. like we've talked about from week to week, uh, when we do talk AEW, uh, you and I both are pretty big on Scorpio Sky and his oh, yeah. abilities and things. So, so yeah, this this can be a really good matchup. Uh, also, we have the Stadium Stampede match, which I mentioned. If the Inner Circle loses, they must disband as a team forever. Of course, we're talking the team of the Pinnacle, MJF, Wardlow, Sean Spears, Cash Wheeler, and Dax Hardwood with Tully Blanchard versus the Inner Circle team of Chris Jericho, Jake Hager, Sammy Guevara, Santana, and Ortiz. Um I think this is one of those instances where this will be fun uh, for what it is. Like, there's not really any other match quite like it in wrestling. So I like that aspect to it. Um, the Inner Circle, this will be their second one uh, that they've fought in. Uh, but, I, I mean, dude, the Inner Circle is probably going to win. I don't see them disbanding. That doesn't really strike me as something that they would do right now. So, I mean, you know. It is what it is. It'll probably be a good match, but it's one of those matches where I feel like you could see the finish coming uh, a mile away. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Yeah, for sure. Especially the way AEW is overall booked with with their factions. They're they're very faction heavy, which as we talked about, I like that because it is is in contrast with the WWE product that, that 
doesn't have a lot of factions. And it's known that Vince was never too big on factions, even though, of course, in the history of WWE, they've had their handful. So I don't I don't foresee them disbanding whatsoever. I definitely see Jericho getting his revenge on MJF from the big bump, which makes sense for the story. But you never know. They could do a swerve for sure. But as you said, hey, I think this is going to be a spectacle. And this is another one I'm going to be having my eye on Sammy. He uh, he steps up for matches like this. We, we called him our MVP in blood and yep. guts. And he, yep. he had some highlights in the first stadium stampede. So I see him going balls out again and doing some shit in this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be a lot of fun uh, overall. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, also, uh, one of the few singles matches here, this one's for the AEW TNT Championship. And I'm looking forward to this one, man, because uh, Big boys Nero, uh, defends against Lance Archer. Um, I don't think Lance Archer's really had much of an opportunity to kind of have matches like this. Um, and Miro, I think right now, is like on his way in this company. Uh, I think he's the real deal. His promos have been good. Uh, I like the kind of direction of his character where he's literally just like a fucking wrecking ball. I think that's where WWE kind of screwed up with him as Rusev. They made him like that, and then they just kind of like backed off from it, which was a huge mistake. Uh, dude's really one of my favorite wrestlers in the entire business. I think he's that good. Um, and, uh, you know, two big boys, like you said, the Jay, this one, uh, I think this one's going to be potential show stealer here. Yeah, WWE did the absolute opposite at the tail end of his run there with taking yep. his masculinity away. Like, you know, he was shooting blanks with Lana and all that. So, so yeah, he's, this is definitely the, shit. yeah, and this is definitely the way to book him for sure. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this being super physical. And like I was saying at the outset there, it's just two big boys going at it. So, um, you know, I, I always like the contrast on the card. You know, this is the big man match. So this should be a, a cool little spot for that. Another singles match we have, that, and I didn't even realize this was happening, but this is going to be pretty good. Uh, Hangman Adam Page taking on Brian Cage with Taz. Uh, dude, like these two could go. So like if they give this yeah, proper this should time be a good, and this shit, should be a show it's going to be fun. Absolutely. There's no doubt. Like this is, you know, I think if Miro and Archer doesn't steal the show, this one's probably going to. Yeah, again, to, to try to stand out as as a few single singles um matchups so they, yep. they could definitely burn down the house if they're given the right amount of time and you know the usually thing we talk about with booking and time uh we have a casino battle royal for a future aew world championship match with christian cage matt Snell, powerhouse hobbs penta jungle boy matt hardy uh mark quinn isaiah cassidy the blade evil uno cold cabana preston grant Preston Vance, Griff Garrison, Brian Pillman Jr., Max Caster, Anthony Bowens, QT Marshall, uh, Nick Camarado, Dustin Rhodes, Lee Johnson, and someone else to be determined. So those are always fun. Uh, I just think it's a uh, it, it fits on the card. It's doing something different, uh, you know, instead of having just another regular match. And you get a bunch of guys on the show that you know you probably wouldn't have been able to get on otherwise. Exactly. Yeah, I, I could see, you know, as far as like the young talent to get a, a push from this powerhouse Hobbs, Jungle Boy or Preston Vance, possibly. Uh, then you got, you know, Penta, El Zero Miro is is always possible uh, as, as a single. And uh, yeah, this this is a, a good spot on the card for for a battle royal. I, I like these. And, and again, it evens out the card, like you were saying, you know, with all the different kind of varying slots on here. 
we have uh, a couple more singles matches here. We have Cody Rhodes taking on uh, Olympian Anthony Agogo. Uh, this has been kind of an interesting feud to me. Uh, Cody's been consistently booking himself away from the roster, it feels like. Um, I don't so much have a problem with it. And I think that it's, it, you know, if this dude Anthony Agogo is pretty good, then this is really kind of going to shine him up nice. So it might be a good move. Um, I don't know if it's a good move, uh, but we're going to find out Sunday. Yeah, you just hit the nail on the head. That's my biggest take on this match is seeing how a go-go is in a highlighted match like this against Cody. Uh, you know, this is definitely a big test match for him. So that's what I'm going to be watching this match for is seeing how a go-go does here. Couldn't agree more there. Uh, we have the AEW Women's Championship on the line as Hikaru Shida, uh, who's been champion for a long time, uh, is going to be defending against Britt Baker, finally. Uh, a match we've been waiting for, it feels like, for a while. Uh, I think this one's going to be pretty good. And that's good how they've done that. Like, we're wanting this match. They've held off yep. on it. They built it properly. So I'm really looking forward to this. And, you know, I, I think we're definitely biased towards Britt Baker for being a Pittsburgh girl and an IWC girl. And I'm huge on Sheeta. Uh, I, I think I picked her in our end of year awards as, like, my top women's uh, pro wrestler from 2020. And yep. she continues a hell of a role with the AEW Women's Championship. So, yeah, this should be a really good match. And that's not it, is we have a three-way for the AEW World Championship with Kenny Omega defending against Orange Cassidy and Pac. This is going to be pretty good. One way or another, I just think these three can kind of uh, go with each other. It's kind of going to be a question of if Orange Cassidy can handle this one, because uh, these other two dudes are, you know, they, it can get pretty rough in there with them at times. But, uh, you know, regardless, I think this is going to be pretty good, too. Oh, this is going to be real good. And I, I love Omega's current heel run. Uh, I, when it was first starting, I didn't know, you know, it's, you got to, you know, it's kind of feel feel your way there with it as far as the change from how he was previous to it. But I've, I'm really like all on board with it. He's kind of calling himself the belt collector. And, yep. uh, you know, he's like the arrogant champion hell bent on dominating the wrestling world while collecting as many world titles as possible. And I definitely see him going over here in a, in a really good match. All right. Yeah. So let's start with this one, the J. Uh, we're going to go through and do some quick predictions. I agree with you there. Kenny Omega is probably going to retain. Um, I do think there is an outside chance that maybe Orange Cassidy wins this match, but it's not going to be by pinning Kenny Omega. It might be sort of a fluky thing. And same thing with Pac. Like they could very easily, you know, pin Orange Cassidy and then he's, he's the champ. So, uh, but I think Kenny does keep in this one. Um, who do you think uh, wins out of Sheeta and Burke Baker? Um, I'm going to go on Sheeta with the role she's on. You know, again, I'm really high on Britt Brit Baker. She's a great heel female wrestler, but I, I just feel like on this card, and again, we'll get into some of the other title matches with our specific p predictions on possible winners and losers, but I'm, I'm thinking Sheeta keeps here. I'm thinking Britt Baker wins. So that'll be interesting we'll see. to see, see who yeah. we picked that. Cause I definitely think it's Britt's time. I think she's really gotten a lot better. Um, and I think, you know, she is going to have to lose eventually. And it's time that AEW starts building up the women's division underneath her. Right. And yeah, that's I a good call. You know, it's a good way to do it. So we'll have to see there. Uh, Cody Rhodes and Anthony Agogo. What do you think about this one, man? I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Hey, y'all, I think that Cody's going to go over, but I wouldn't mind seeing Agogo win. I, I feel like he needs it as Cody can get over a loss in this slot. 
Okay. Um, I think it's, I think what they're going to do here is Cody's going to win this one, but it's going to be like, oh shit. Like, you know, it's, he's, he's going to win by the skin of his teeth. So, yeah. uh, because they're trying to make this a go go do. If Cody, uh, if Cody's going to win, that's what, yeah, that's what they're going to have to do for, for Cody to go over. Uh, what do you think about the Casino Battle Royal, man? Um, if I'm looking at this list, the one name I keep looking at repeatedly is Christian Cage. Yeah, um, it seems like they're going to go that route, possibly. He's had that interaction with Omega. Uh, both of us agreed that we feel like Omega is going to retain, so he'll need an opponent moving forward, and that's a really good call with those seeds planted. And just to be different, though, hey, I'll kind of go for somebody random uh, just to see what happens here. And uh, let me go with Jungle Boy. That's my man. I'm going to just go with Jungle Boy with the big upset Casino Battle Royale win. And dude, let's do this too, because I, I have a little, I don't know if you paid attention or if you saw this or whatever. I have a dark horse pick in this one and I don't think okay. this is going to happen. Nick Camarado. Do you know who this dude is? No, when we were reading off the list, I was, I was going to mention that to you. I'm not sure. So, I'm sure so I'll he, know him to see him. He's one of the dudes with QT Marshall in them, like the nightmare factory. Okay. Dudes. Yeah, he's the big, like, Bruiser Brody kind of looking dude. Well, do you remember a few weeks ago, I don't know if you missed this or if you saw this or not, but on uh, Dynamite, I think it's when Cody wrestled QT Marshall, uh, but they did a gimmick where uh, they put one of them old wooden chairs in the ring and they broke it over his head. That's an old, if you remember in WCW, they did the same thing with Meng and Dusty Rhodes and shit. Yeah. They basically ran that... They're giving him the fucking men gimmick. So there might be something to this dude that I think people are kind of missing here. Like if they're doing that with him, they're trying to legitimize this dude. I don't think they would just do it with him for no reason. Um, So there's something to that. And plus, you know how like a battle royal goes, dude. If you run with a flock of people, you always have a better chance of winning. So they can always kind of do something like that too. Uh, I don't know. I still think Christian Cage is the guy to go with here. But if you had a, if you had a dark horse, like a, a serious dark horse here, uh, who else would you go with? Maybe the pre mentioned uh, that you mentioned QT Marshall because of him leading the faction and them giving him a decent heel push is a okay. possible dark horse. Yeah. So we're kind of this different guys, but practically the same reason so right yeah okay uh think about adam page and brian cage battle of the age who do you think yeah um i this is another one they're really big on adam page so uh i don't know if this is kind of like cop-out picking for the preview here hey you know it's just kind of how my mind's working right now that hangman goes over but i would want to see cage win here i think he needs the win more than page yeah, I think Cage probably does need to win more, but I don't think he's going to get it because I think Adam yep, Page is literally saying, like, so he's I'm like in you. the upper echelon of the company, in my opinion. And, and you know what? Exactly. He's a dude that I, I've been pretty big on him for a while. I think he's really good, so I'm, I'm not complaining about that either. Uh, now for the AEW TNT Championship to Jay, you think Miro's going to lose here or you think he's going to retain? I think he's going to retain. I don't see them kind of rebuilding him, getting him away from, you know, kind of like the more comedic stuff that he was doing with like the video game busting and all that to to lose the title this quick to Archer. Uh, this is another one I feel like they have to have like a burnout, beat the shit out of each other match and Miro like barely pulls it out, but he pulls it out. Yeah, and I think there's also a strong possibility of this match never coming to a finish. Like 
these these yeah, two look like they're too. set up for like a fight that's not going to stop. So I, I think that's possible. And Jake, Jake's is, down there. Jake the Snake's with Archer, so that could be a possibility of him interfering somehow. Yeah, I just don't see Miro losing the title. I'll say that much uh, about that one. Um, do you think you think the inner circle is going to win? Don't you? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. we talked about breaking that match down, I, I feel like that's exactly where the storyline's going. Uh, Sting and Darby Allen versus Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page. I think, and I, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to go with here that Sky and Page win, uh, and Darby's going to take the loss. It's going to be this thing where like Darby's constantly losing because he just lost the TNT, TNT Championship. Like he, it's like he lost his mojo kind of give thing. him a bit of a losing streak. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's a, that's a good call. Yeah. The, I, I would, uh, contrast that with sting, you know, coming back for the first time, like we mentioned in a lot of years and, and getting the pin. I, no, I think that's very possible. And I don't think people would have a problem with that really either. Uh, young bucks versus John Moxley and Eddie Kingston. Um, I'll be honest with you here, dude. I don't see them doing a title change, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all to have them do a title change and then have them lose it back in like two weeks or something. Yeah. I kind of swap it. Yeah. It's not a, not a bad prediction. Uh, I'm just going to go with a straight up really good match. Like we, we previewed in the young bucks retaining. Uh, Yeah. I think you're probably right there, but you know, it is what it is. So we, of course, next week here on the show, guys, we'll have a full review of that. Um, so, you know, hope you guys enjoyed the wrestling talk. Uh, we're going to hit the brakes on that just, uh, for a little bit, at least until we, uh, come back from our first commercial break. Uh, but we got some other stuff to talk about here, the J, uh, especially when it comes to the world of sneakers. Uh, and this is, it's crazy to think about here. Uh, like we said before, these keep coming back up on the show. Uh, but if you know there's two things we like on the show, it's Bruce Lee and it's sneakers. Okay. So uh, we talked a few weeks ago on the show about uh, Steph Curry wearing a pair of Bruce Lee inspired, like custom made sneakers. Uh, and he did it for to raise money for families affected by uh, anti-Asian hate crimes and stuff like that. Um these went on to auction and they sold for $62,000. 62K. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, and it was for a good cause too. So like, that's pretty cool. I just thought it was kind of funny to see like a story that we told here on the fucking show, basically come full circle like that. Full circle. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm just hoping that they make these at like uh, a high capacity for release. It's probably not going to happen. Like, no, I can it's not at all. Need, but I mean, how cool they, would that be? What if they just did it, but like it didn't have all the stuff on it? Like maybe if it just had like smaller hits of like Bruce Lee related shit or like they were in the yellow colorway. And you know what I'm saying? Like if there was that's a way the thing there, the colorway, there's Steph Curry's that are uh, black and gold and white with yep. the Bruce Lee stuff. So that I mean, I would just love to have those. Those are ridiculous. But yeah, not going to happen. But throwing that out into the the galaxy. Hey, you know, who knows? Uh, also, uh, the Nike Dunklow undefeated collab has been announced. Uh, these are going to be a massive deal. Um, they're nothing crazy. Um, they're cool. Like I dig them. Um, but like people are going to lose their shit over these. Um, they're basically like in this purple, white, and blue colorway. Undefeated collaborations go for a lot of money. Um, It's it's super hype stuff, but like these are pretty sick. 
Yeah, they're snakeskin covered. Yeah, dude, they just I, I just think the, the materials on them alone are the reasons why these are amazing. Uh, I like the colorway and shit too, but like they're gonna be great quality like all the other undefeated Nike collaborations have been. Yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna be interested to see what those start selling for on StockX. That's Big bucks. to check out. Big bucks, yep. And did you see this story, dude? I've seen so many things about this like in the last week, but uh Major League Baseball umpires are starting to get noticed for stepping up their shoe game, specifically for wearing Jordans. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dude, this is pretty hilarious. Basically, uh, so Hunter Wendelstead, uh, he started to get nervous. It says, this is according to ESPN.com, the night before, uh, Wendelstead, a Major League Baseball umpire since 1998, had manned second base during a Sunday night matchup between Atlanta and Philly. He cycled through the game in his mind, replaying all the calls that he had made. I didn't miss anything uh didn't mess anything up last night. He said to his two teenage daughters because they, I guess they were texting him. She said, no, you're trending for your Jordans. Uh, like, and he's like, like everybody's like, they're like, why is this old dude wearing Jordans? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's going to be us. He was wearing the Jordan 11 Jubilees uh, during a, a nationally, you know, televised game on May 9th. And like, everybody was going ape shit about him. Uh, but I mean, dude, it's, it, see, here's the funny thing, right? People might think this is weird, but like this is why we like this shit because people notice yeah. this stuff. Like it's a thing. He's been dubbed Air Jordan Baker. There you go. So, <laughs> uh, but like, dude, they. I, I was like, like, I read another article yesterday. I think it was where like they were talking about like more umpires are doing this shit now, and like, you know, but like, dude, this is what we said. So this this umpire's forty nine years old, right? So he turned to some younger guys, like other, you know, umpires for advice, like on, you know, just what, what they're wearing on the field this year. So Jansen Visconti, a 33-year-old referee, basically kind of like threw him the tip on it. But like, dude, this is all shit from our era. It's not like I've never heard of the Jordan 11. Like, I, re- I was in high school when they first came out. Like, so were you. Like, it's not you know, like we're well aware. So it's not like this is something we're completely out of touch on. We made the shit something yeah, that's to begin the thing. with in the first place. Yeah. It's not like part of our parents' generation. So they don't grow up wearing Jordans, even though, you know, my dad, as we call razor had some Jordan threes back in the day. Razor always yeah. had some, some hoop gear. Uh, but yeah, there was another umpire that they mentioned in an ES, the ESPN reference article I had, Alfonso Marquez, hey, who yep. wore Jordan 9 golf shoes while on the job, but blacked out the Jumpman logo in order to make them compliant with league uniform policies and, of course, avoid raising the eyebrows of New Balance executive. And, and uh, it goes on to say that Marquez owns more than 250 pairs of sneakers, which he stores in his garage. So you know, another little cool part of this whole thing as well. Dude, it's... You know, here's the thing, like most of us, right, probably wear sneakers to some degree, like you might be a sneakerhead or not, right? Like we all have to wear them, like, you know, it's a thing for everybody. So like you can either do something or not do something, you know what I'm saying? Like we're just the doers, like we don't wear fucking, you know, like Air Monarchs and fucking dad fucking new balance and shit even though i love new balance and just not those particular ones like right so you can either do it or not do it it's up to you but like it's a noticeable difference like 
when I meet somebody, that's just, it's a common reaction to look at their shoes. I always say, dude, I'm going to be in a nursing home, heaven forbid, with, uh, or I shouldn't say heaven forbid, <laughs> hopefully, bless, <laughs> blessingly, you know, in a wheelchair with some Jordans on, you know, my, my grandkids will know to throw the Jordans on pap or something. But yeah, it was cool too, because this article goes on to say uh, that the growing interest in footwear actually birthed a text chain featuring about 25 aspiring sneakerhead umpires. And it says in the thread, umpires regularly share photos of their latest pickups and group shots of different crews wearing Jordans together. So, we, yeah, starting a bit of a trend here. And we got to start flicking it up now that uh, COVID's less of a concern and everybody's all vaccinated because uh, usually whenever we kind of all hang out, there's a nice array of footwear. Yeah, our friends on. know. They know. We know to bring the heat. Yeah, like the, yeah. If I'm running on the street for something, I'm just throwing some beaters on. But if we're for all heading out or something, like I know, I I can't do that shit because I'm gonna be the sore thumb. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not gonna be the sore thumb out of all our friends. So fuck that shit. But yep. Also, that's not it in the world of sneakers too. Of course, this week there's some pretty interesting releases. Uh, of course, these are all the sneaker releases for the week of May 24th through the 30th. So the J. Uh, I uh, I think that I, as crazy as these are, I think I could pull these ones off. The Nike SB Dunk Low, what the Paul? Do you see these? They're yeah. both they're mismatched shoes. They're crazy fucking colors and patterns on them. But like, I think I could fuck with these. I like them. There's no way I'm gonna be able to get them. Um, but like, they're ridiculous. Yeah, they're not they're not for me. But uh, we always say this when it gets brought up, and I have to just say it go that route again like these are like the artistic side of sneaker head them these yep. are like art art pieces and they're they are really cool like if if you were sporting those i'd go nuts i mean it's it, they're not easy but you know what i'm saying like they're interesting uh of course there's a bunch of nonsense this week too like the these are for women but these are some of the ugliest fucking shoes i've ever seen dude these the jordan women's ogs these shoes are fucking horrid looking. Yeah, those are nasty. Um, of course, they have some uh, the Nego human made uh, Adidas slip ons, which is just not my vibe. Um, the Jordan Zion nah. one in the Marion colorway is horrible. That's an ugly fucking shoe. Nah, it's really bad. Uh, I don't know. I think I've asked you this before. Do you like uh, Vapor Max? Do you have any Vapor Max? Yeah, I do actually. So the Nike Vapor Max Fly Knit 2021, uh, obviously coming out in a couple different colorways. Do you like them? Are you a fan? Would you get more? Is it uh, something that you liked at one time, maybe moved on from? Like, what? How do you look at the Vapor Max? Yeah, I'm. I'm with you. You, you kind of nailed it. I'm. I'm there. I, I have my one pair that I really like. They're just black and white. You know me with the black and white colorways. Uh, okay. But yeah, they're. They're black and white, and uh, I'm just good with having that pair. I don't, I don't know if you, you happen to stumble upon it. Um, I don't know if it was on the internet or if it was a magazine I caught. And it was a while ago, so you might have most likely would have missed it. But Roman Reigns was actually training in the ones that I have. Oh, okay. Do you, I was going to say, are they just for normal wear? Do you run in them? Did you run in them? Like, did you get them for any specific purpose? I've, I've worn them to the gym. I like, they're, they're a solid gym shoe. Like I always talk about, I predominantly, uh, most, most gym days wear my, uh, old school Converse cause they're flats, but yep. every once in a while I'll switch shit up and, and I've worn those in the gym and they're wow. decent to work out in. 
I was going to say, are they compa- like, cause I know like, obviously they're completely different than the Chucks for working out in, but like that, that still works for you though. Like the, even though they're vastly yeah, different shoes. Okay. I, cause yep. I don't, I've never owned Vapor Max. It's really not my vibe and I don't really know like what the performance is on them. So like, I didn't really know what the advantage is to them, you know, compared to something else, you know, that's like, even in that situation, that's vastly different. So that's, that's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but yeah, so you're not looking to get any more pairs, basically, is what that was. No, yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. Did you see these Air Jordan 1 low spades? These are interesting. These are they're they're cool. I they're like not them. again. They're, I have to say it again. They're not kind of for me, but yeah. they're definitely cool. You know what? My only issue with these is like they look cool in what we're looking at here. But like I have a funny feeling if I saw these in person, they would look like fucking ugly bootlegs to me. I was going to say, for those just listening without the reference, they're kind of like uh, playing card inspired. Yeah. They have like a spade in the place of the uh, the Jordan symbol on the tongue. They have on the, the tongue, and, yeah. The king and queen, the K and Q on the, the sides of the shoes. So K and Q. Just something a little bit different. I thought that was kind of cool uh, one way or another. Uh, obviously, they have a bunch of other stuff that's coming out like in women's sizes. Like they're putting out these Arctic Punch 8s in kid sizes, which... You know, that's pretty wild that they're putting those out in kid sizes. Like, are kids really fucking with Jordan 8s like that? Yeah, seriously. Uh, the Nike Zoom uh, MMW04s are atrocious. I don't understand shoes like that at all. Um, and then they're putting up the Jordan 3 Rust Pink uh, for the ladies. Um, I'm sure a lot of dudes would probably want these too. Um, I they're not my vibe, but like they do look nice though. Like even in the pink and shit, like they look like oh, they're solid cool. materials. Yep. You know, even the pink elephant print. That's the one thing about the Jordan Three that's sick is like depending on the colors that you get, the elephant print is always different. And I just kind of like the fact that that was a piece of the original Jordan Three back in the day, and they continue to keep it as a piece of the Jordan Three. It's just kind of cool. Yeah, it's like I have I have the Georgetowns that, that I love that elephant print. The yeah, it's just a cool blue. feature. Like that's that's something yeah. that's that's exclusive to the Jordan Three. So if you don't like that, you're probably not gonna like Jordan Threes. You know what I mean? Uh, exactly. The Jordan Series point oh one debuts in two colorways. They said this week, dude. <laughs> when I seen these, these remind me of like shoes that Michael Jordan wears off the court, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're ridiculous. Uh, did you see the USPS inspired Nike Air Force One? Yeah, these are funny. Are <laughs> There was a lawsuit and everything that's been since settled. Uh, and that's why, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, they're coming out. But, like, dude, okay, it's cool. They look cool and everything. But, like, who the fuck really loves priority mail that much? <laughs> they're like, I'm trying exactly. to get some priority yeah, it's like mail a joke. Yeah, it's, it's a weird joke. This is something <laughs> you would see it on, like, the April Fool's, you know, Nike yes, app or something. Like, but these real. don't really exist. But these are real. Exactly. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, Dude, the the Lakers inspired Nike Dunk High. I, I feel yeah, like these we brought cool. these up a few times. These are so fucking yep. sick. Like, dude, if you got a Laker jersey in your lineup, you kind of need these to me. Yeah, I would love to get them because I, I got that. Uh, you know, I referenced it last week. I picked up the Mitchell and Ness official Kobe Bryant jersey. So talk and about dude, a you, pair to go with that. And you know what I mean? Like, I don't really like Kobe sneakers. So, like, if I had a Kobe jersey, this is what I'd want to wear, you know, on my feet. Yeah. Uh, yep. The Washington, D.C. inspired DTLR uh, New Balance 992. 
Um, these are thick, uh, probably more of a, like a winter shoe for me than, than anything, but nonetheless, yeah. uh, I, I do like them. I probably won't be buying them. No, definitely not buying them, but they're, they're nice. You know, I could, I could definitely see you in those. Dude, do you, you're definitely probably getting these easy foam runners, right? The, the mineral blue ones. Oh my God. It looks they're, like, no, a, no, 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 no. You're, you're getting the sand ones. My bad. <laughs> it looks like a futuristic couch. Or Dude, something. It doesn't even look like a shoe. I, I know I saw Bieber in these. I've seen a lot of people in these, and they're like, oh, they're so comfortable. But I'm just like, you look like a goof. Like, so that, that's a strong pass. Uh, and dude, these, I thought these were already out, but they're coming out in every size. The women's, kids, the whole deal. Yeah. The uh, Air Griffey Max 1 Varsity Royals, man. These shoes are sick. I, I'm a big fan. I like them. Uh, it's a maybe for me. We'll see. Like, if, if I ended up seeing these on the shelves, I might end up with a pair. That's what I would do and say. I, yeah, I probably can't go for them. I mentioned, like, currently where my sneaker head budget is is i'm just going for like the absolute can't pass up and, and attempt uh and these are close but not quite on that list uh, i've said numerous times on the podcast my love of ken griffey jr is one of my favorite baseball players of all time and love the griffies but yeah just not the timing of it but there is a possibility if if something you know the stars aligned hey you know, jay might pick these up yeah, so uh, it was a nice fucking scalding hot day here in Pittsburgh, the J. So uh, anything on foot of interest today? Yeah, you know what? Um, I was hoping you were going to bring up the sneaker check, and I meant to send you a text of my uh, shoes that I was wearing, but I didn't, of course, got distracted. But I busted out. I had on a, um, a cutoff, like a, a sleeveless hoodie uh, of the Rocks, um, line, you know, the project oh, yeah. rock line, like yep. it has like the Brahma bull on it and it's gray. And I had on some, some gray, uh, basketball shorts to go to the gym. So what went perfect with black and gray, the air raids, ah, for yeah, this week's nice. sneaker check for the grit J I popped up, uh, popped on the air raids. Now you've worn the, have you worn those before? Or did it, was this? Yeah, uh, I, I wore them. I, I wore them up to seven Springs. Ironically, I got them right before we went to seven Springs in the fall and okay. I wore them up there just to, you know, kind of t- try them out and test drive them for the whole weekend. Uh, how they hold up to a second wear? are they getting more comfortable? Cause they feel like they're yeah. the ones that like, as they wear in, you'll break like them, them in. better. Yeah. Yeah. Had to break them in. Yeah. They're nice and broken in. And, uh, yeah, I love the air raids, man. Takes us back to fucking junior high or old asses, but throwing yeah. it back at you, hate you sneaker check to your ale. Yeah. I basically was just like plain black bullshit today. Like I had black shorts on and shit, nothing crazy. So I was like, fuck it. I could kind of wear anything I want. And I went with the Jordan one low reverse breads, uh, I haven't worn them in a while, so I just decided to break those out again. I, dude, I'm a sucker for the lows in the summertime with shorts, man. They kill. Oh yeah, for sure. So, yep. You know, I definitely had to, it's to a good throw call. those on. So, uh, you know, not too bad. So why not? So that's this this week's sneaker check. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. And real quick before we take a commercial break, this is a pretty big deal. Uh, it kind of got lost in my notes here. That's why. Or otherwise, I would have brought this probably up earlier. WWE to resume live event touring in July with the 25 city tour through Labor Day. Uh, it's not coming anywhere near us here in Pittsburgh. Uh, they have announced dates for Houston, Fort Worth, Texas, Dallas. Um, and, you know, they're going to keep, you know, more and more uh, on sales and stuff as time goes on. Um you know, I think that it's probably time that they, you know, companies would start doing this kind of thing. Um, I don't know 
how they're going to do it. Like, I don't know if there's places that can't sell out full arenas and places that can. I'm not exactly sure how that works everywhere. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a slow transition, but I would imagine that, uh, you know, it's going to have to happen sooner or later. Slow transition, definitely interesting to see. I'm sure it's rumor and innuendo, hey, Eop, but I was hearing that they're shooting for full capacity at SummerSlam, and SummerSlam's actually emulating from Vegas. And I believe, did, did you hear about this? Is this coming True. from the Raiders' new stadium? That I don't know. I, I know that it's going to happen in Vegas, but I didn't get any details on the, the facility. So. Okay, yeah, I was curious about that. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, but it's it's also good to see, man. You know, some semblance of normality coming back because in, in the article I had pulled up for this as well, hey, Ed, they mentioned that NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell stated last month that he expects the league to have full attendance at games during the whole 2021 season. Yeah, which I, I think didn't, so. I, that's the first I heard of that, so. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it's, see, now this is going to be the weird thing for that. I know we're getting deviating a little bit away from the wrestling here. Uh, but, dude, there's a lot of word that there's going to have to be booster shots given uh, at some point. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people are looking towards maybe the fall for that to be the time where a lot of people are going to have to do that. I don't know exactly who and how that's going to work. Nobody does yet. Um, but if that's the case, like this could be a really bad thing for some of this stuff. Uh, because, you know, they could say full capacity, but a lot of people are waiting to get boosters and things like that. And, you know, it's causing sort of a delay. So people aren't really running out to stadiums and shit like that. But I don't know. We'll have to see how that goes. But, you know, for right now, you know, it, it's natural to think that eventually, you know, touring and things and crowds and stuff like that are going to be coming back bit by bit. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting there. Slowly but surely, like you mentioned, hey, you know. Absolutely. So we are going to take our first commercial break of the show uh we're almost an hour into this bad boy the jay how's that feel uh oh, i'm good no, I'm but i told you i'm striated vascular all right jay the jay took his ico pro this morning he's ready to go yep, i'm ico pro up and that's perfect timing because when we come back from our first commercial break we're going to take a look at this week's a e biography on the ultimate warrior so stay speaking of ico pro <laughs> oh well yeah a lot more than ico pro too but <laughs> We'll be back, guys, right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real Podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. This is Ed from the What's Real Podcast. Join us next week for episode 73, where we have a pay-per-view review for AEW's Double or Nothing show. Also, we're going to check out the new A&E biography on Mick Foley. We're going to head on over to the dark side of the ring for the episode on The Ultimate Warrior and another special double feature presentation from our buddy Joe Bob Briggs at The Last Drive-In. All this and more next week on episode 73 of the What's Real Podcast. And we're back, and it's time to get into the A&E biography on The Ultimate Warrior. Uh, few WWE superstars through the years have had, I guess, the lasting effect on fans that The Ultimate Warrior has. Um, that's kind of the, the ongoing theme with most of these. Uh, I would say almost everybody falls in that category, except for maybe Booker T. Um, but, you know, the, 
Warrior also had a very inter- interesting ending to his life um, that we'll get into as well. Um, that even makes this one uh, more interesting. And so does his uh, a little bit of controversial past and tumultuous relationship with Vince McMahon and WWE as well. Um, like most of these, we start out by seeing Warrior at a young age, um, him growing up uh, in Indiana. Um, this is the first time I remember seeing anything with his mom. Uh also kind of, you know, with this background and stuff, uh, I guess the Warrior DVD or documentary kind of went into a little bit of this, uh, but this seemed to be a little bit more thorough um, all the way up until his teenage years, kind of showing how he got into bodybuilding and, and felt it was a way that he could make money. Uh, he was somewhat successful in bodybuilding and quickly realized it wasn't the career for him uh, in the 1980s as pro wrestling was kind of getting a foothold in America with the WWF and Vince McMahon going national. Uh, a lot of people of this stature were kind of getting to, into the wrestling industry, Warrior being one of them. Uh, they showed his beginnings in Memphis with Sting uh, as part of the Blade Runners. Uh, this is all stuff that, that we pretty much knew. Um, but the thing is, and this is the amazing thing to me about this one, the Jay. Once he started getting into his career in wrestling, they talked about the Dingo Warrior in, in World Class um, and kind of giving his reflections on that, which we've seen and heard before, too. This one got really interesting once they got into his WWF run. Yeah, because, I mean, we, we have to say, which we've talked about from week to week with the first slew of the A&E uh, WWE biographies, that... It's it's a double-edged sword with the involvement of the WWE because you kind of need them involved to kind of for the footage, you know, at least for the footage and like all that's what I was gonna say. Like a lot of the technical aspects in, in the storytelling of the documentary, but on the other side, of course, uh, of that double-edged sword is you're not gonna get the full warts and all kind of treatment. And the Warriors episode, I think, for most of us you know, hardcore fans and even wrestling personalities. Like I mentioned to you off air, Jim Cornette was kind of saying if the Warriors was not less negative than Macho Man Randy Savage, that something's kind of up there, you know, and, you know, we could get into it. But I I think that's a disclaimer we kind of got to bring up first is, is the fact that the WWE's involvement in this, I think definitely overall put a much more positive slant Yep. on the warrior story than what could have been. Yep. And that's what's interesting in timing because next week we'll be covering the dark side of the ring episode on the warrior. So that's going to be fun to contrast. It would have kind of been cool if it was the same week here, but otherwise not really. It's close enough that, you know, we'll talk about that next week because there's plenty to talk about anyway. So I just wanted to mention that kind of stuff on the outset. Hey, yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. That's a good, good chance to get that out of the way. Um, also, the thing about this one, it's not so much about what you're seeing and hearing. It's about what you're not seeing and hearing. And by that, I mean, so we're pretty much instituted in this, right? Like we've seen Stone Cold, Piper, Macho Man, Booker T, right? Well, we've seen four episodes. We know what to expect at this point. So it's pretty common through the first four episodes of the series to hear from a whole litany of wrestlers. Sometimes people that were very close to the situation, sometimes not so much. 
Um, did you notice on this warrior one, there was a lot less wrestling personalities and a lot more like biography guy, podcast guy, author, that kind of thing. Yep. Oh yeah. And the reason behind that is, and you know, I'm sorry, we grew up ultimate warrior fans and we could talk about that a little bit too. Um, but he wasn't the best guy and his peers didn't really have a lot of good things to say about him. And the only people in the wrestling business that show up on this one to me are people like Vince Russo, who would show up to do anything. Uh, Paul Heyman, who was the WWE's like, okay, go talk about warrior for this thing. And he's doing a job. Um, And he did that. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm not disparaging the people even on here. Oh, He's always great, but it's not the same. And that's the reason why he wasn't the best guy. He didn't have a lot of wrestling friends. Uh, a lot of people in wrestling don't want to talk good things about him, even though these past, they just would rather not, um, you know, it is what it is. Um, but it still doesn't mean that there's not some interesting things in this. Uh, mainly, as I was saying too, whenever we get to the WWF portion of his career. So here's the thing. I think that we could both kind of speak on this, that Jay, we were both Ultimate Warrior fans growing up. Um, we were Hulk Hogan fans growing up. Um, now, they tell you a lot about their personal, or not personal, I should say professional animosity. Um, but I don't really think that was the case. I think they kind of played that up in this needlessly. Um, Warrior didn't really care about Hogan. And Hogan wasn't really threatened by Warrior. Warrior was a little bit difficult to work with, but Hogan never really had difficulties working with him. That was more Vince McMahon in the WWE or then the WWF. Um So they kind of play out of this angle like they had this professional animosity when the reality of it it is that's not really the case. He he just wanted to to make as much money as Hogan. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the deal. Um, But the thing is, Warrior beat him. The title reign lasted for about a year and then fizzled out. And that's kind of what it was like during the year it was great. and We all kind of liked it. I liked it as a kid. Like I loved the ultimate warrior. I thought he was great. Um, then it all kind of fizzled out and was like, yeah, whatever. Hogan's back. Hogan's still the guy. It it is what it is. So that's what Hogan mentions in this, that at WrestleMania six, he specifically says the fans were watching him leave as opposed to the warrior celebrating the ring. Yeah. And that was all part of it. Like if that's not a tell. Yeah. There there was all like, even at the time and even looking back at it, I, I really do like the way they told that story. Because the thing is, a lot of people didn't like that because they're like, oh, it's Hogan's way of stealing some of the heat here, you know, or I should say the rub. Um, But really, Hogan was such an instrumental character at that point and up to that point for so long that he deserved that walk off there. Um, But they do explain this in the documentary. This is pretty interesting. They didn't they didn't have the right sort of people lined up. Um, they talked about how when he was Intercontinental Champion, they kind of, you know, used the, the Andre as a stepping stone for him. They did that too early. He shouldn't have did, he should have did that when he moved on beyond the Intercontinental Championship. Um, and I know that the time was ticking for Andre and his health, but, you know, they did that too early. So, like, he's beating guys like Andre as the Intercontinental Champion. Then he goes on to beat Hogan. So he has the title belt 
who's there for like fighting Rick Rude to step down as much as I like Rick Rude. I'm talking about stature and place on the card um, and fighting guys like perfect. Right. It's, it, they didn't have any credible challengers for him. That's why at the time you remember whenever uh, the ultimate warrior lost the belt, he lost it to slaughter. That was like a mind blowing moment. Like people weren't expecting that. And that was great storytelling too, just to, to bring up the specifics of being a fan back then as a kid and them starting the warrior Macho Man feud where Macho Man ran down and cracked the scepter over Warrior's head to cause him to lose the slaughter. Yep. And it you know, that that all led to the career versus career match at WrestleMania seven. That stuff was great. Yeah, and just to bring that up there. And it's weird because like I thought I don't know how to explain this here. Maybe you'll see what I mean. I it, it just sounds nitpicky. I expected more on that. They didn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that it was terrible, but I just expected more on that. I don't understand. I mean, I don't even think they talked about the uh, the career versus career match. That's what I'm saying. At WrestleMania 7. Like, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, good point. I don't get what it is. Like, even whenever they, like, say, WWE.com came out with a, mat, uh, a list of their greatest WrestleMania matches of all time. That match never makes it. And I don't understand. It's they always talk about it as far as Macho Man and, and Elizabeth are concerned. It's always a major point that they make for that, but they never give it the credit that it deserves. It's Warrior's greatest match of his career, without a doubt, and it's one of Macho Man's best. And it's one of my favorite matches of all time. Same here. That match is fucking fantastic, and I think most fans hold that match dear too, especially from our era. It doesn't get anywhere near the kind of love from them that it should. And I don't understand why I really don't. Um, and they could bring on a bunch of other people to talk about it because warrior and macho man aren't here anymore. Uh, but they don't do that, but whatever I digress. So there was some really weird shit in this too. Like, dude, what the fuck was the deal with that whole videotaped apology to the fan thing that they did a thing on? Um, that was bizarre. That was weird. I never saw any of that. I know. I never even tell heard the tell the before. the layman's term story real quick. Hey, yeah, for our listeners. Uh, basically, the gist of it is Warrior was champion, uh, and what, now was it that Vince saw this? Uh, that's what I wasn't clear. I on. think he just. I think he just heard about it. Okay, so basically, Warrior had a shitty interaction with a fan, and Vince. Maybe the fan wrote a letter about it or something, and Vince got. It was like a little kid came up to him in a in an airport, and like Warrior kind of snapped at him. Yeah, and it it somehow word got back to Vince, and Vince literally. And I don't understand if they sent. They didn't really get into the details on it, like if they sent this out to them or something. But he made Warrior uh, do like this in character apology. Uh, that they they were and like they even showed the behind the scenes of it like Warriors like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here like what is this and Vince was like no it's a work <laughs> it was it's interesting because Vince was saying it's a work yeah yep. that in that one moment right there to me was the most fascinating thing in this whole documentary uh, because you're seeing something and you're hearing something from our perspective as fans for a long long like decades long you don't hear Vince screaming it's a work. Of- 
of course, those are the things that stood out to me like that. And as you mentioned, like having his mother involved, like as far as talking about his upbringing and childhood and then his high school football coach, Greg Pate. Yeah. The, that was the, the really guy cool. he lifted weights with the guy that kind of got him into bodybuilding and stuff like that. The Cause then of course one. his wife, his uh, widow, Dana warrior throws it off because you know, and, and that's expected. I mean, it's her husband that she loved and she has a completely different perspective than literally anybody else on the planet of, of how the ultimate warrior. But of course she's still trying to preserve the legacy and kind of put the most positive slant in it, yep. you know, along with his daughters, of course, yep. which again, that, that shows how, how much like, you know, different sides to warrior there were True. because the girls do talked fondly of their dad. So like, you can't ta- take that away from them too, that, his his girls loved him and, and respected him as their father and things like that. Like he wasn't a bad dad, it, it, it seemed. So there's I mean, there's a lot to it. It's definitely like they always said about the warrior man. He's a com- complicated, complex guy, and that's kind of what this documentary entails. And then they get into the latter portion where they're essentially talking about the controversies. Uh, that through the years, there's been some videos that have uh, shown up online. Uh, there was one from a college speaking engagement that the warrior did uh, where he's famously quoted as saying, quote, queering don't make the world work, unquote. Uh, very unpopular, even at the time. And this was a long time ago. Um, got a very negative reaction from the people that were in attendance. This video had surfaced years ago and it's been everywhere uh, for a long time. Yeah, I just um, I don't remember seeing the one college student like berating oh, yeah, Warrior yeah. that they showed. That was interesting too. He's like, You apologize now. Yep. You apologize now. Like he called he was like, You fucking like, piece of shit. Like the dude was yeah, playing yep. into him. Um now this was the ugly side of the ultimate warrior that a lot of people uh don't know about, refuse to believe, uh, or just flat out ignore. Um, this is a part, however, and we've talked about this for years because, you know, like we said, me and the J have been fans forever. We've been friends forever. So like, this is the kind of shit we've talked about for, for a long time when it comes to pro wrestling. Uh, growing up in an era where you were a huge fan of Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, who years later, you essentially came to a realization that these guys were both pretty much awful human beings um, in one way, shape or form. Now, I can sit here to this day and tell you, like, I fucking love the characters. Like, back in the day when I was, like, I still look at back in the day Hulk Hogan when I was a kid as the fucking best shit of all time. It's not, and I know that, but I still can enjoy it for what it is. But Hogan's a horrible person. He's a liar, and he's a goof, and he's a weirdo, and he's not a good dude at all. And Warrior really wasn't either. Um... Now, you can still celebrate the characters, but I kind of feel like you always have to preface it by kind of saying that kind of stuff. Um, and then it's fine. You know, that's like the asterisk that people kind of have to live with sometimes. Um, you know, you, there's consequences for your actions. That's just how it is for everybody. But yeah, at the end of the day, it takes a very specific personality to pursue and especially get to that height yes. of the professional wrestling industry. And especially at the, well, at the time in the eighties. And dude, you know, as well as I do look at that era of top guys, you know, you have your Hogan's and your flares and your macho man's. And then even through the years of like Bret Hart's and Shawn Michaels and rocks and Austin's and all these other dudes. Um, he's the anomaly. He's the dude that was like the successor to Hogan. 
the dude, the guy. That's the future was him. Um, and he was kind of gone in a year with some sporadic appearances here and there before he would just eventually disappear and then retire and then come back and go in the Hall of Fame. Um, there's really no one else that kind of got to the heights that he did and then just disappeared like he did either. Guys would always kind of stick around or be in the company or what have you. Like, Warrior just wasn't having that shit and was out. He was yeah, that's, that's, one of his That's what, it, uh, what, my bad, hey, Ed. Yeah, that's, that's what Heyman broke down from the WrestleMania six huge match was that the pressure that was on Warrior in that particular match on that specific night was unlike anything seen in the business before, and, he, and they pulled it off. Yeah. You know, give Hogan credit, too. And and also, like, another thing they didn't mention in this that we know is Pat Patterson uh, had his fingerprints all over that match. They didn't mention that at all. Um, not that they needed to, but nonetheless, I'll throw that tidbit in there, too, that Pat Patterson helped them put that match together because, you know, like, like they said on there, those dudes were going 25 minutes. So they really needed as much help as they were going to get. They pulled it off. But, but yeah, to your point, and Dana Warrior mentions that it, only basically five years in his prime career to, yeah. to completely to your point on what he did is, is unprecedented and there's nobody like the warrior. And then as one of the talking heads, as you mentioned, that author dude, I think was the one that said it about once he did have that prime run. And as you were mentioning, he started disappearing. Then his whole legacy and basically specifically his career at that time became for us fans, just when is he going to come back? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And then he would would just come back and go and come back and go. Even a, a really brief forgettable run in WCW. Well, see the one thing that I'll give credit to that, that I thought this biography did well, uh, it skirted a lot of things and it didn't tell you the full story. I'll say that much. Um, they were really good and accurate with his wrestling career, though. I felt the wrestling stuff was pretty much flawless in this. Like, yeah, that was good. They summed up his career. Like, dude, as somebody that witnessed his whole career, like, I watched wrestling before and after the Ultimate Warrior, right? The Warrior was just a thing. Like, people kind of thought he was cool, whatever. He wasn't a big deal. But then when he beat Honky Tonk Man at SummerSlam, that sent him off into the stratosphere. And he literally did not come down until... uh, Let me think. The first time he left. Yeah, pretty much. Like, he did not come down until that. Like, he was even on point. Like, once he returned after, what, at WrestleMania 8? It was over at that point. It was over. It was done. There was never the same again. Never even came close. Um, That's when people started speculating that he had died and there was different warriors because he looked so different. He was thinner, all things considered, for how big he was in his prime of of roiding and gassing to the gills. And uh, he looked a lot different. One thing about this that I thought was terrible, though, as far as wrestling goes... They didn't even touch anything in WCW. Not at all. Yeah. Not even a mention of it, which is very weird. Um, I thought that his wife uh, is kind of controlling a narrative here on a lot of it. Um, I get the reasoning why. I'm not saying she doesn't love her husband. I'm sure that's part of it, too. I'm sure a lot of it is for business purposes. 
Um, but it's her cleaned up version of it. And because of that, this does suffer a little bit. Uh, still interesting, still worth a watch. I, I, I thought there was still a ton of really good stuff in this. Um, but overall, um, it felt let, less hit PC than the, the Macho Man one did, even though they talked about the their own hit piece, the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior, which they act like is this big heartbreaking thing for Warrior. But like, I don't buy that anyway, because he most likely got royalties from that. Uh, whether he liked it or not, it's a whole other story, but he got paid from it. So I doubt he's like super pissed. Um, but they played that up more. I, I just think a lot of the playing him up as like a sensitive guy seemed like bullshit. I'm sure he was that way with his family. I mean, I'm not denying that. Um, you know, it's a nice rehashing of a story about a guy who just wasn't the best guy. Um, he passed away shortly after going into the Hall of Fame, which they got and all that. That stuff is very eerie to me. It's always been strange and creepy. And, you know, nothing against them. That's not their fault. But it's just been very bizarre for me ever since it happened. And it's just one of those, like, clouds looming over wrestling to me for whatever reason. They, they pieced That's it up making it, like, a nice, neat little sad story. But to me, it's a little bit stranger than that. I don't know. That's where Heyman was really good again. He he mentions how like that was like you know almost like poetic, like Shakespearean end to Warrior. Like he finally made peace, yep. You know and opened his heart back to the WWF and buried all the hatchets. You know they show. I mean Vince Vince does get legitimately emotional yeah. and they 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 ask him at one point like would you consider him a son and he's like no I have one son but he's like you know he possibly might have considered me a dad and he's like you know I in the height of our friendship, I love the guy, you know, cause Shane McMahon talks about that where he'd be over the house and, you know, hanging at the McMahon's personal home and things like that. And that's true. Which was, was not common. That's yeah, very so true. Yeah. All, all that stuff in there. And then, uh, yeah, like you said, man, the culmination of it all and, and him burying the hatchet with all these guys going into the hall of fame, appearing on raw in a, in a great promo that like got all of us excited again. Yeah. Yep. The warrior was back as a character, did a really good promo. And then I think it was legit like two days later, two days after that raw. Uh, and, and that was, that, that was tough to watch was uh, Dana warrior recounting, when Warrior had his heart attack, that was and pretty rough. He like kind of, cl- yeah, he collapsed on her. I mean, I was tearing up during that. You know, we're older now and been through personal loss. So, you know, as as much as a, a P- POS as he may have been at certain points in his life, again, you know, we're all comp, you know, very complicated as human beings, and this was a complicated man. And uh, it's you know, reliving everything, and like you mentioned, the, the wrestling aspect of this was really strong, really well put together. So as, as a whole piece, I, as, as most of these have been, I've been thoroughly entertained. I can poke holes in them for sure as we have been and do as necessary. But other than that, I am enjoying this collaboration with A&E and their biography team with the WWE. Absolutely. Same here. And next week on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the next installment of A&E biography on none other than Mick Foley. So uh, yeah, that's, be good. that's pretty much it, I guess, for Ultimate Warrior. You feel, feel pretty good about that, the Jay? Yeah, especially with, uh, again, the uh, Thursday's episode, uh, Becoming Warrior, it's called on um, Vice and Dark Side of the Ring. So this one featured Dana Warrior, as Ed mentioned, kind of giving uh, a positive slant on the Warrior's legacy. Well, becoming warrior um, on Vice and the Dark Side of the Ring episode has his ex-wife, uh, Sherry, 
is like the main catalyst telling telling the story. So uh, it's going to be again a very interesting thing to see what what Dark Side of the Ring does in contrasting and comparing these two different episodes. Well, and here's the thing that I can say is you know comparing the two shows, any biography works with the WWE. So it always has that slant. Exactly. Uh, and, and Dark Side and Dark of the Side Ring is not exploitive. They have people who we know who they are working as consultants on the show. So, like, they're getting their information right. They're doing really well at that, especially this season. I thought it's gotten even stronger. So, yeah. um, but it's going to be interesting to see how they contrast and compare. So, uh, yep. we are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to be down at the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs for a Maniac Cop double feature with Maniac Cop 1 and 2 from 1988 and 1990, respectively. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Hey, everyone. It's the Jay from the What's Real podcast here today to talk about ChurchillPictures.com. Churchill Pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in Churchill Borough, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jared Bajoris and Damiano Fusca began collaborating on their first feature film in 2007, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival in 2012. Go to churchillpictures.com to check out our original trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, the entire history of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW, exclusive independent wrestling content, and exclusive videos showcasing our next huge film project entitled The Marks. This includes an appearance from our character, the feature presentation, Johnny Starr, on the streaming talk show, Alone Together Pittsburgh. We are Churchill Pictures, established from the bond of two childhood friends. We envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities. Go to churchillpictures.com today. And we're back here at the old drive-in, the last drive-in, with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs for another double feature uh, from the last drive-in on Shudder each and every Friday. Uh, this week, it was a double feature of Maniac Cop. So let's just get into it. The J first up from 1988, directed by William Lustig, the director behind such classics as Maniac and Vigilante. Um in New York, people are slain and strangled to death brutally on the open street. All witnesses agree that the murderer was in a cop's uniform. Soon the police search and find a suspect in its own ranks. Jack Forrest, suspected of murdering his own wife and the rest of the unfortunate individuals to die by the maniac cop's reign of terror. To prove his innocence, he investigates the case with his partner, Teresa Malloy. Uh, and of course, this all culminates in none other than Matt Cordell, uh, and I thought this is a pretty good uh, way of explaining it from Joe Bob. Uh, Jason Voorhees with a badge is yeah. basically what we get here, uh, played by Robert Zadar. Um, Maniac Cop is kind of a cult classic for sure. Um, it has a really huge reputation, and it, it's not weird or, or hard to figure out why. Uh, it was made by Lustig, who's a massive cult director, and this movie stars Tom Atkins, Bruce Campbell, Lorene Landon, Richard Roundtree, William Smith, Robert Zadar, and there's also a few, uh, even fucking Jake LaMotta shows up in this yeah. movie. 
Um, Sam Raimi's in here. There, uh, Leo Rossi shows up uh, in this one, even being uncredited. And yes, he's also in the sequel as a different character, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but dude, here's the thing that's uh, interesting. Now, Maniac Cop is a cool movie, okay? Uh, but it's one that I have always thought is a little overrated. Um, it's not as good of a movie as it should be with this kind of a cast. Yeah, that's a good call because um, there's a lot of, uh, again, this one kind of gets uneven at portions. Yeah, it, it's definitely uneven. Um, and, you know, it's understandable, too, when especially when you know a little bit more about the making of the movie. Like, they even got into it on this where. Yeah, that was uh, cool. I didn't know any of so, that. Before they even had a title ready to go, uh, they knew that Bruce Campbell was going to be in the movie. So, like, uh, Lustig brought him to New York just to do some stuff around the St. Patrick's Day parade. And it was like, well, all right, well, what am I going to do? It's like, I don't know. We'll figure out when we Yeah, get we didn't there. even write it yet. Uh, we, <laughs> yeah, we don't even have a script. We're just looking to basically go steal production value <laughs> from yeah. the city of New York, uh, which you could do at the time. So uh, they did that. And, you know, I appreciate it. It's a really ambitious movie. Um, I thought it's a cool idea, of course. Um, and, you know, it was impressive that they got Tom Atkins at the time, who was, you know, wasn't just a genre guy in, at the end of the 80s. Like, he was doing a lot of work at the time. And, you know, bringing in some some old favorites and stuff, people like Richard Roundtree and Lorraine Landon. You know, Bruce Campbell's always good to me. Um, it's a decent movie, but it's not mind-blowing. And for how much people will talk about this movie... It's like, I feel like anybody watching this for the first time is going to be disappointed in it, especially if they get the hype from someone else. Yeah, this is, uh, of course, we would be remiss to say Bruce Campbell straight off of Evil Dead 2, pretty much. So, and and like you yeah, mentioned, he had, he had Sam Raimi with him when they went to the parade. So that's the, the part that Raimi plays is the, the TV reporter during the parade, which is hilarious. Um, some yeah. of the some of the tidbits I wanted to mention, hey, you know, like you said, it's pretty interesting how the whole thing came together. Because, of course, William's William Lustig, Lustig's biggest claim to fame to that point is uh, the cult hit Maniac. And, uh, you know, that's a fucking classic to us. We freaking love Absolutely. that movie. And uh, he ran into Larry Cohen at a convention and they were bullshitting yep. over coffee. And Larry Cohen like mentions to him uh, about doing like maniac, but add cop or something like that. Like it was like, yep. you know, you'd never that's think Larry that. Of, Cohen. Yeah. And, and that's like the whole thing happened. And he said he didn't think anything about it. And then William Lustig calls Cohen. He's like, I got the money. And he's like, next thing they know, they're they're making Maniac Cop. So that was that was cool. And like you mentioned, Tom Atkins and Bruce Campbell, uh, a good you know dynamic duo there to get acting wise off the bat, and and then some solid character actors as we've been through. One one little tidbit that is kind of like a personal connection with us, just being two Pittsburgh boys, is that Joe Bob told the story in one of his interludes regarding Tom Atkins being at the da one of the Dapper Dan dinners. They do these Dapper Dan dinners uh, created by the yep. Pittsburgh Post-Gazette a long time ago, uh, like 100 years or something, these things have gone on. And Tom Atkins is there and runs into uh, former Pitt basketball coach, current TCU basketball coach, Jamie Dixon's Jamie dad. Dixon. <laughs> yeah, so they Dude, have this connection. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, Jamie Dixon's dad's in me. <laughs> yeah, and it turns out that he's like a big collaborator with, with Larry Cohen, 
which is weird. Yep. He's like in cue the uh, wing serpent. I think Joe Bob said he, he rattled off like 11 credits that James Dixon has with uh, Larry Cohen project. So that was a, a really cool tidbit for, for two Pittsburgh boys. Cause of course, Tom Atkins um, is, is uh, a Pittsburgh guy. Cause you know, he even Absolutely. mentioned how he did the, the one man show stage play, the chief. Based on which a, is on unbelievable, Rudy. yeah, it's the and best thing ever. Of course, throwing personal tidbits as well. I was in the gifted program, patting the J on the back here, as hey Ed knows in high school. And one of the por- portions of of being in the gifted program was we we did like certain things other students didn't get to do. And one of those things was we went to the Pittsburgh Playhouse, uh, different plays like as as field trips and stuff. And one of the plays I saw was another, I don't know if it was a one-man show, but it was a play that Tom Atkins was in where he drops his robe at one point doing a monologue. So, yes, the Jay saw Tom Atkins full frontal live and in person. So, got to throw that out there. <laughs> All right. I don't know if I could top that one. <laughs> yeah, but, top that. Uh, but, dude, I do have an interesting point about Maniac Cop. Uh, it's not the greatest movie, right? And that's ridiculous because this is a movie that no joke. Okay. If you're just talking about genre films alone, this is one movie. Okay. That William Lustig directed Larry Cohen wrote, who is also a prolific director in his own right. Um, Sam Raimi, another prolific director worked on this one. And the executive producer of this one is James Glickenhaus, the director that made The Protector with Jackie Chan and The Exterminator. Like, four tremendous... Powerhouses, yeah. Yes, and they make Maniac. Yeah, and that and that cast, like we were saying. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird, man. It's a movie that should be better than what it is. Now, I will say this. Uh, Atkins is great. He does exactly what you want from him. Um, he, he plays that grizzled fucking detective. And that's part of the unevenness like, too, though. Hey, Ed, like he dies pretty early. I think Joe Bob mentioned that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's things which about was weird. this movie that are super weird. Like Bruce Campbell's character. Bruce Campbell's really good in this. Um, but they like, and they explain this, like Lustig didn't like him as an actor. <laughs> So like yeah. he didn't want to give him dialogue and stuff. So, but like I thought Campbell was very good in it. Now, Lorene Landon's pretty bad in this one. I don't care what anybody yeah. fucking says. Um, whatever. Richard Roundtree's cool. He's not in it that much. Uh, William Smith looks totally pickled at this point in this movie. Um, and you know it is what it is. Uh, the, of course, I love, I love the Jake Lamotta deal. That's fucking super cool. Um, Frank Pessy's in this too. Sam Raimi, as we said, like decent cast. Um, it should be what better than what it is. So, uh, as you guys know, we do five star rating scale on this one. Uh, the J, I don't know about you. Oh, before we do that, duh, hit me with some taglines, brother. Yeah, and right before the tagline, one one last thing I wanted to mention because we mentioned a lot of the time, you know, we throw it around probably too much. We always talk about mugs stealing the show, whether it's a movie or a wrestling match or a wrestling pay per view. Uh, this is the opposite of stealing the show. He like ruined the show and it stood out to me like comically. So at least it entertained me. But Barry Brenner as the coroner. Did you oh, notice yeah. that? Oh my God. It was the weirdest shit. I was about to text you on that scene. I'm like, dude, I don't remember this being this goofy and bad. Like this dude. Oh, I can't even explain it. 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, trust me, he was talking about somebody else uh, whenever they were interviewing him. And like, he was like, what's the deal with their performance? And he was like, "Uh, they were, um, we'll say medicated uh, during this. Yeah, he was like snorting bourbon. Like, dude, I don't know. There's like definitely a few outliers in here. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's one of them. Um, but yeah, very bizarre. Uh, no, I don't have an explanation. I was kind of yeah, hoping just, they might bring it up on here. They didn't. I just had to bring that up. Cause I mean, like I said, it was at least entertaining. I was like cracking up like, dude, this dude's a fucking goof in this. But, uh, but yeah, one of the, one of the classic taglines of all time. Hey, you know, for maniac cop, 1988, you have the right to remain silent forever, forever. All right. So as we do here on the show, we go with a five-star rating scale, the J. What do you got Maniac Cop coming in at? Going with the solid three for this one. Hey, yo. And same here. So that's a good call, man. I totally agree with you on that one. So let's just get into it, guys. The second feature uh, was none other than Maniac Cop 2 from 1990. Again, directed by William Lustig. It was a little bit different uh, this time around. Uh, we basically have Robert Zadar coming back as Matt Cordell. Claudia Christian shows up in this movie. That's who I believe he said was super medicated. Uh, Michael Lerner uh, is in this one. Bruce Campbell returns. Lorraine Landon returns. Uh, Robert Davey shows up in this one. And that's a really yeah, interesting man. story about how they got Davey in this. Uh, and it's a yep. thing that Lustig uh, does very, very well. Uh, he lies. Because uh, he was in uh, The Living Daylights, the uh, James Bond movie, Robert Davey was. And he was overseas trying to sell another movie. They were getting ready to make Maniac Cop 2. And they, the foreign press loved Robert Davey. He asked, you know, they asked him who was going to be in Maniac Cop 2. And he said Robert Davey. And they went nuts. So funny, but it actually worked out. Yeah, they cool got story. Him. Uh, Vincent Russo shows up in this one. Robert Earl Jones shows yeah. up. In this. That's James Earl Jones' dad. Uh, Clarence Williams III shows up here, of course, as we remember from Tales from the Hood. Oh, yeah. Uh, Leo Leo Rossi's character is a complete show stealer in this one. <laughs> uh, Lou Benaki, Charles Napier. I mean, th- there's tons of people in this one. Now, this is what I always say to Jay. I don't know how you feel about this. Now, had you, you've seen Maniac Cop 2 before, right? Yeah, it's been a hell of a okay. long time. So here's the breakdown. A supernatural maniac killer cop teams up with a Times Square serial killer because that's basically what the movie is. And that serial killer is played by Leo Rossi, by the way. Um, Now, this one sounds pretty simple, and it is. um, But in my opinion, and I've always thought this way, Maniac Cop 2 is significantly better than the first one. Um, it's just more action. The special effects are better. Um, they seem to have way more of a clear cut idea. Like the first movie, as you said, was kind of like all over the place. This one's not really all over the place. It's pretty clear cut what they're trying to do. And they're trying to get from A to B. That's it. Uh, it's exactly what it promises to be. It's fucking maniac cop doing his thing. Um, you get plenty of that. Um, now Robert Davey, uh, is also a really cool character. Joe Bob got into that a lot on this one because he is the hero of the story, but he's a total anti-hero. He, he's a cop that acts like a criminal. And it's the perfect kind of character to face up against the maniac cop. I just think that the story of the second one is just so much more interesting than the first. And it doesn't really make any sense why. And this would be a good place to mention. Um, I was going to bring it up. I forgot for 
uh, our breakdown of Maniac Cop uh, with our peeps here. We're hanging out at the drive-in with Joe, Bob, and Darcy, and their guest for Maniac Cop on the TV head screen was Bruce Campbell, and this one yep. was William Lustig, which was really cool. Because uh, yeah. William Lustig had some great stories, which I'll throw that one at you, Hayat, after I do my um, early early breakdown here on the story that he tells about one of the mascots of the What's Real podcast oh, uh, that came shit. out of nowhere. Yeah, that was Woo. awesome. But uh, yeah, just my initial takes. Uh, you broke it down pretty good. Uh, one thing I would add, because uh, again, this is a movie from 1990, so boop 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 spoiler alert uh which was probably really cool at the time because this didn't this was obviously very well before game of thrones and things like that where it's kind of common for you know everybody points out executive decision when uh uh why am i brain oh, yeah when Steven, yeah, Steven Seagal all, yeah. dies at the beginning, everybody was surprised. Well, in this one, because Bruce Campbell wasn't uh, being paid well, in his opinion, enough uh, to be in the movie. But then again, like you mentioned, I think it had Lustig wasn't that huge on him as an actor anyway, and kind of figured that they did it as far as they can go with their characters. Uh, Bruce Campbell's character, Jack Forrest, gets killed by the maniac cop pretty early on in the film which again, at that time in 1990, wasn't common. And then when you have the backup with Robert Davies' character, like, hey, Ed broke down, which is like a pretty cool character, uh, I think that kind of took this in in a much more positive direction than the first one. And I think uh, we both agree that's why we like it more, you know. But that, that was a really cool thing that out of nowhere, Bruce Campbell gets killed pretty early on, and then Davy takes over. Yeah, and I think it would have made sense if they would have did it the opposite way that they made these. Like, if this would have been the first one and yeah. the Maniac Cop was the second one, like, you expand the cast. You know what I mean? That would make more sense. But, dude, this movie is the one right. out of the series, to me, that just hits the notes. It does what you want it to. It's pretty enjoyable. Everything is pretty well made. Um, I thought by 1990, William Lustig was probably a better all-around director than he was the first time around. Um, so he knew how to get the shots he wanted. He knew how he to and Joe Bob talk about way. that. And it's, yeah, Joe Bob well, asked him what his, he thinks his favorite movie ever made is. And he says, Maniac Cop 2. He, he said he was on all, you know, firing on all cylinders as a director. And they just, you know, really nailed it. He said it was like going to war, you know, and they pulled it off. And that this is, uh, his opinion is his best movie overall that he ever made. And dude, he's kind of the last of a dying breed to a certain extent. Um, like it's part of the group that we t- there's a small group of genre filmmakers full out of the New York area. And you had William Lustig was one of them. Larry Cohen was one. Uh, probably James Glickenhaus was another one. Uh, you had uh, Roy Frumkies, who's a guy behind uh, uh, Street Trash, who also did the he wrote the substitute movies, you know, with Tom Berenger and yeah. shit. Um, just a whole collection of guys from New York that were making movies from like the late seventies into like 1990. And a lot of those and Frank Henenlotter is one of them too. Um, And I feel like Frank Henenlotter and William Lustig were like two of the last ones. They hadn't moved on to doing something else or whatever. They were still trying to make their movies uh, at a time when New York was in great flux. And it was probably more expensive to make movies in New York than it ever was uh, before. So that's part of the reason. And then, of course, New York's big gentrification and change. You couldn't go out and steal shots anymore because the city was way more highly regulated. You couldn't even come close to doing stuff like that today without having huge involvement from the city. So it's kind of a last of a dying breed film, too. And I think that that's pretty interesting, too, because, dude, shoot a low budget movie. Right. But if your backdrop is New York in 1989 or 1990, that's a pretty fucking interesting backdrop. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a cool place to bring up uh, what I thought was a really cool conversation because you and I have actually talked about this specifically before Joe Bob brings it up. And in one of his interludes, he says, yeah, you know, at all these conventions I do and all these different places I travel to, everybody says to me, like, you have to be the guy that watched the most films ever of all time. And he says, yep. nope. He's like, there's three guys I could name that definitely have watched more films than me. And two of them were Frank Hennelotter and uh, William Lustig. And he, they were at a convention and he tells that story. And he was like, I was sitting between you two guys. Joe Bob was sitting between yep. Lustig and, and um, Frank. And he was like, it was just the craziest experience ever because here I am, this cinephile movie nut that knows all this stuff. And you guys made me feel like an idiot. Yeah. And that happens. That's why you don't act like you know everything. You yeah, know what that's I mean? what's cool about Joe Plus, Bob. You also have to notice, too, like when you're around people like that, maybe it's time to shut the fuck up and listen to them. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's, that's kind of the way I always treated it when yep. I was around people like that. Um, but one of the reasons why Bill Lustig has seen so much stuff is because being a New Yorker, New York at the time had more theaters than anywhere in the world. Period. It wasn't even close. Uh, they had 42nd Street. There was repertory theaters all over the city. There were small cinemas, big cinemas all over the place. So you could go see movies multiple times a day, every day for as long as you wanted to. And they would venture into the dangerous part of the city to see movies like 42nd Street. And there was another place that, that he mentioned that I, escapes me for the life of me. But it was just in a bad area in New York. But he makes the point where he says, but see, the thing is, I used to go to see these movies with friends. And he goes, I used to see movies with Frank all the time, talking about Frank Hendenlotter. But he said he would go into these dangerous neighborhoods with a friend of his and nobody ever bothered him. And this blew my mind. And the reason being is because that guy was none other than What's Real Podcast Thursday Night Prime Hall of Famer. Steve, Steve motherfucking, motherfucking James. James. Like, oh, dude, yeah. I would go, I would walk into a pit of hell with Steve James if yes. I had to. So that popped me huge. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'd fucking do that too. Like, cause he's like, yeah, he's basically the dude you think he'd be like in real life. And it's like, and if you guys don't know who Steve James is, uh, he's uh second lead in the exterminator uh, from James Glickenhaus that I talked about earlier. He's in the American Ninja movies. He's in a ton of action movies in the eighties and he's a big black dude. And he's a bad motherfucker. And he's one of our absolute favorites here on the show. So that was love us. Probably, Steve James dude, between that and the, the story of the Pittsburgh stuff, like yeah, I was fucking sold. This is dude. This to me, uh, besides the first week was probably my favorite week this season uh, of Joe Bob. I thought they dude, like, remember how uh, earlier in the season he had uh, Eli Roth on and I was like, oh, that shit was like insufferable fucking this goof just going on and on and on. Yeah. But this show is the opposite of that. It was great to catch up with Bruce Campbell and get some funny stories and same thing with Bill Lustig. Yeah, so like, I just absolutely thought this was a fucking fantastic episode of The Last Drive-In. So kudos to Joe, Bob, and Darcy on a job well done there. I wanted to, um, to mention as well, Hand, with uh, Claudia Christian that you mentioned that plays Susan Riley, like the um, therapist of, of the police and all that, which that was one cool thing to talk about another side story. It just popped up in my head. Might as well throw it out here was that Lustig stole a Jackie Chan sequence with her where she gets handcuffed to the steering wheel yep. and the car goes, goes off. And like, that was amazing. That was an amazing stunt. There, there's some like, let's throw that shot out there. There's some really good stunts in these movies yes. too. Like when, um, 
you know, he, he, the one dude, uh, why am I brain farting? Our man, Tom, hit me, hate you all. Oh, in the first one. Allow the the brain force. But when he gets thrown out the window, I was just talking about like the stunts that stood out. And then, of course, the the end scene with the truck and uh, Bruce Campbell's character is holding on to the side window of the truck and they go off this ramp off the dock. And the stuntman does a freaking like shooting star press (laughs) into the bay. There's that one fucking stunt for no reason where a dude gets thrown out of a window on fire and it's one continuous yeah. shot where the dude just bounces off a rooftop and then just lands on concrete and he's just laying there on it, fire. And one of one of the, the maniac cops like quote unquote special moves is throwing people. Like he throws Campbell, yes. he, he throws the chicks and he throws that one chick through like the Christmas window at dude, one point that acting- was unreal. The Atkins ones are pretty great. Like, yeah. he's just getting thrown off. Shit he just throws mobs like a bear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but back to my point, like, I <laughs> I just wanted he to mention shoots people and throws mugs. That's yeah. what he does. But Claudia Christian, um, she was in Arena, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. That's who I'm I knew her sure. from. Okay, yeah. Shout out to yeah. Arena, which is a, a a little gem of Hey Ed and I's from our childhood in HBO. Which, which we might have to one of these one days. Day. Yeah, we'll definitely go. get to that. That's a fact. That will happen on the show. Yeah, but, so. but yeah, she. I was like, I know her from somewhere, and yeah, I put it together without even Google or IMDb. And hate y'all. So the J, why don't you hit us with a tagline for this bad boy? All right. So the one poster, because the tagline was so good, had the same one. You have the right to remain silent forever. But there was another one on IMDb that is keep off the streets because he's back on the beat. Okay, And I got another one here. It's you have the right to remain silent forever again (laughs) because it's a sequel. Yep. Um, So for this one uh, on our five star rating scale. I'm going to go with three and a half stars. Definitely better than the first time around. Yep. Right with you in co- cohesion. Hate you at three and a half from the J. And dude, for shits and giggles, uh, whenever I watch Joe Bob, uh, it, as long as I'm up and if I can keep doing it, I like to see what movie they show afterwards. So they showed Maniac Cop 3 afterwards and I watched it and I hadn't seen it in a while. And boy, was I pissed. I fucking bothered because it sucks. It's really bad. It's... It's one of those Alan Smithy movies at this point, too. Like, they didn't want, nobody wanted their name on it. Lustig hates it. Uh, and now I kind of know why. So, I've I, seen I it never before. Even saw it. Been, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't even worry about it. I'll You're just not stay away anything. from it. Yep. So, we are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going back to the world of wrestling, specifically the dark side, if you will, because we're going to check out Vice's dark side of the ring collision in korea so stay tuned guys we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast this is ed from the what's real podcast for physically fit with kurt angle at physically fit we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality better for you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy in a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings superior ingredients great taste texture and quality in every bag we strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith family respect and excellence daily our goal is to be a small part of your life personal growth health and happiness we consider each customer to be part of our growing physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest set new goals daily to 
better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet, because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you, and a healthier you makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. show and it's time to get into some more dark side of the ring this time collision in korea for those of you who don't know wcw had an event in 1995 called collision in korea where they would go and face off against members of new japan pro wrestling and uh this was from Pyongyang, north korea and the reason why it's significant is because this is the biggest wrestling event uh, in the history of professional wrestling. Um, two days, over 190,000 fans both days. Um, then again, none of them had to pay, and they was mandatory attendance because North Korea. This was the essential story told by the wrestlers uh, themselves about their, you know, experiences. So we got Eric Bischoff, Scott Norton, uh, Too Cold Scorpio, um... I don't know if there's, oh, Antonio Inoki. That was huge. I was really, yeah, I was shocked by that. Um, And at the time, the reason why this was an event is because Antonio Inoki was the big wig behind New Japan Wrestling. He was also a politician at the time. So he had an idea uh, because his party was the party of, I think it was like peace and sport or something. And uh, he had this idea to go to North Korea to do this big show and to promote peace. And they decided to try and recruit as many wrestlers as they possibly could. They tell the story, Eric Bischoff specifically tells the story about asking Hulk Hogan, uh, where he says, can't make that one, brother. Which, as soon as I saw that clip, I even sent it to you because I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah. and, of course, Ric Flair was uh, plan B to face Antonio Inoki in North Korea. So they go to the, you know, the event. Also, Muhammad Ali was another person that was supposed to be coming on the event and did. He was like an ambassador for the show. They were trying to get as many big names, household names as possible to be at this event. Ali was the only one that they got. Now, there were some really cool stories about Muhammad Ali, but a lot of this was basically the wrestlers telling you about what it was like to go to North Korea because, you know, Eric Bischoff tells the story about he was the uh, the seventh American uh, to ever stand on North Korean Seoul, and he was the first one that wasn't either imprisoned or killed. Yeah, he said that really so, put into perspective instantaneously <laughs> what he was getting and into. He, he, and he tells a terrifying story, so... Uh, basically they were all chaperoned constantly by uh, a person that was assigned to them or even in particular situations, uh, North Korean soldiers, armed soldiers. And Eric Bischoff tells the story about like, and he said in the morning at the time he used to wake up every day and go for a jog. So he woke up in the morning, nobody was there. He decided to get dressed and go out for a jog. And when he did, like people were literally running from him in the streets because of the things that North Koreans are taught about Americans. And 
he got back and you know his his concierge was you know like where were you what was going on like all this stuff and he he was pretty much sure that she was going to get you know killed for allowing him to leave and that just kind of shows you the overall environment that they were in scott norton tells a story when they get uh flying from japan and they go through an airport where like tables have dust that's like six inches thick and he's like somebody hasn't been in here in 60 years like this is pretty crazy um and they tell all kinds of stories about how oppressive it was how they felt unwelcome and constantly spied upon uh rick flair was horribly uncomfortable he wasn't on the episode but even people you know it's pretty legendary that people know how much flair didn't like the experience um but, you know, it definitely was it's one of the more bizarre episodes of Dark Side of the Ring, uh, just because of the nature of it and how just absolutely weird of a thing that this really was. You know, what sums it up pretty good was they have a CNN journalist that was a career journalist uh, interviewed on here. I don't have his name handy, but he was pretty good, and had some good insight just being, you know, the non wrestler as part of this story. Yep. And he yep. said in his entire career of journalism, this was the most, most surreal and weirdest experience of, of his life. Like you have this ridiculously communist country that like you mentioned, like the seventh American that, that Bischoff was stepping on the soil says it all. You have Muhammad Ali involved. You have Anoki in here. And then you have like Hawk from the road warriors and like the Steiner brothers too cold Benoit just all these like goofy wrestling personalities. And and then you t- take 150,000 and 190,000 citizens throw in a stadium And North Korea was really good at doing spectacle. So they, they did yep. this whole crazy spectacle before the events to build them up. And it was just, it's like a, a fantasy. Like I, I always shout out John Pollock and his postwrestling.com as my references. And he even says in this, this episode is not going to generate the discussion of like, say Brian Pillman or be as compelling as Nick Gage, but it's a very bizarre snapshot at a unique pair of events. If you went in without knowledge of these stories, it reads like complete fiction or tall tales from wrestlers, but it happened. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And dude, it's, it's pretty wild. Just like, dude. So yeah, it kind of feels like the way that they tell the story, it's like they went away to a prison or something. Uh, because they couldn't do anything. There's no funny stories about like me and the boys went and did. Nope, you sure as fuck didn't. Not there. Um, and it, it's just, you know, and plus these guys, that's an experience that nobody's had. You know what I mean? Like if, the, if I was one of those guys, I'd be like, look, it was a terrible experience, but like, I'm glad I kind of had it because I made it out of there. Like, I mean, people could say they, they've been to North Korea. Like I've been there. You know what I mean? And like Scorpio even says that he's like, yeah, I don't have a lot in my career over Hulk Hogan, but the one thing I got over him is I wrestled in front of 190,000 people. He never did that, you know, like, and he's like, and I did that two nights in a row, like, but it's true. And dude, here's the thing. I'd seen this show many times. Okay. And they, they got into it in this where they said basically that North Korean people, imagine this, imagine going to a wrestling show but you've never seen wrestling and you don't even know what wrestling is. That's essentially what the fans were here. So they weren't making a sound. And I thought that was strange because I'm like, I've seen the show before and they were making sounds. They were reacting to stuff. Um, But then I went back and I watched a match that I was able to find on YouTube from the event. And I was really shocked because I didn't realize something. It was all post-production. 
the fans yep. moving. We did because I was gonna say I personally still own in my attic where my VHS uh, wrestling tapes and all that are stored. I still have the Collision in Korea VHS. Yeah, and it's you know it's a very weird show for sure, especially when you go back and watch it now, knowing the things that you know. Um, it was a really cool episode of Dark Side of the Ring, and I think it's a really fitting episode because I think that just because you're covering the Dark Side of the Ring, it doesn't always mean some tragic wrestler death. There's a lot of other bizarre fucking stories in the world of professional wrestling that you can cover that don't really fall under that category. And this is one of them. Yeah, and everybody in this was really good. Bischoff's always good. Of course, we always laugh at the real-life names, which I don't know if I knew this, but Two Cold Scorpios, Charles Skaggs. Um, yeah. Sonny, Sonny Ono popped up in it. Uh, that yeah, C- who I actually like, Sonny. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad he was in this. Uh, that CNN correspondent I mentioned, his name was Mike Chinoy. Um, and then the man that stole the show to me, who I loved, was Scott Norton. He was great in this, man. He's such he, good storytelling. It was great. He's really good, dude. He's it's amazing to me that he doesn't show up on more things. I know. That's why I think I liked it, too. Yeah, exactly. He looks great. Yep, he definitely does. He still kind of looks the same, which is crazy to think. Yeah, because the dude, he's still probably built like a brick shithouse, even for an older guy. I guarantee it. But um, yeah, his stories were great. Of course, they get into the the story that is probably the most well-known from this show where uh, Two Cold Scorpio uh, attempted to, or it was at least pondering attempting murdering Hawk after a little bit of a <laughs> He made a, 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 sh- a shiv out of chopsticks <laughs> in yeah, front of Benoit. Dude, Benoit's like, what are you doing? They were roommates. <laughs> yeah, because Benoit's the voice of reason. Here. Like, <laughs> yeah. what the fuck? Come on. Like, dude, this, this part of it I thought was just like unnecessary, but I don't blame them. That's just more of like fucking Scorpio. I mean, it, it was kind of funny. Himself. Yeah, like I guess, you know, he, he alleges that Hawk called him the N-word and so they got in a fight and like it was just like building the, you know, like if, if they were going to squash it or not. And then eventually they run into each other in the elevator and they get on and they end up squashing it. And Hawk basically apologized and just said, like, I'm out of everything, brother. I don't have coke. I don't have steroids because they're in North Korea. So he's yeah. like going into remission there you know, from all well, the cities. What a stupid idea it was for half of these guys to even go on this fucking trip because of yeah, the Hogan. We were laughing at Hogan. Meanwhile, reasons. he made the right decision. <laughs> yeah, it's because I wouldn't have fucking went either. <laughs> <laughs> they told a great it's story like, when they get back to they get back to Japan from North Korea and Flair literally, you know, with his you know alligator skin shoes and the three thousand dollars suit jumps on his knees and starts kissing the ground like thank God I'm back like, in Japan. I love Japan. I love <laughs> Japan. <laughs> And and it's that Norton telling that story was hilarious. He's like, he was the nature boy again. He was miserable for days, but nature boy was back. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. But yeah, this one was a pretty good episode. Like I said, it's definitely a fitting subject piece for, for Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, I thought it was also like kind of a fitting change from, you know, what they've been doing this season. And I think it fits. So I, I definitely enjoyed this episode. I'm glad they did it. And, uh, you know, it's a story uh, that they covered that kind of needed to be told a little bit more. And uh, this is just an opportunity to do it. So I, I thought they did a great job for that. 
Yeah, it was really good. The only the only other thing uh, that I had bullet pointed in my notes to mention was I thought it was a, a cool story. Uh, once again, I think Scott Norton was telling it where, like you said, hey, Ed, like the crowd was silent like the whole time. And it was just really weird. And the guys were killing themselves to try to get a reaction. But because of this crazy story that uh, Antonio Inoki had a correlation with this guy named Ricka Dozen. Uh, Ricky Dozan, yeah. Yeah, and he like... Was, that's the original... Like, he, this dude was a Japanese wrestler who was, like, the most famous one ever uh, in the old days of wrestling, like, the, go- the gorgeous George days of wrestling. Right. And uh, he was actually North Korean, and people didn't know that until after he was dead. Yeah, and he was um, killed... He was murdered by the Yakuza. Yeah, and it, it would have obviously been a big deal. So, uh, you know, it is what it was, and, and I mean, I get it, like... You know, that's a major part of the story and the storytelling that you have here. So, uh, but yeah, it's an interesting piece. And it's, uh, you know, and Antonio Inoki is a major part of wrestling history for a lot of different reasons. Um, A lot of people don't remember this, but like, dude, when in the movie Bad News Bears go to Japan, there's a scene with Antonio Inoki. Yeah, I remember that. You know, Inoki was a huge, 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 huge deal in Japan for a long time. So, uh you know, he's one of the few people that could actually pull something like this off. And it's definitely part of this. And that was, that was like what I was saying. Yeah. That was like the culmination of the whole thing because of that connection to Ricky Dozen. He was over in North Korea and the main event of both nights was uh Anoki versus flair, of course. And in that match, the crowd came around and got super loud and that like gave me goosebumps. That was a really cool, like, you know, kind of climax of the whole thing. On top of All I can else. imagine. Can you imagine what those fucking people thought about Flair? That's what, yeah, Bitchoff said that. He's like, you got this guy with like white blonde hair and a sequin yep. robe. <laughs> They're just like, what? Like, the they hell? don't get it. Like, he's yeah. a complete, like, he's a dude in a He's like an alien. Them. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, exa- yeah, basically, yeah. They wouldn't have understood anything about what Ric Flair was. So, uh, a pretty crazy episode. You kind of got to see it to believe it. I definitely recommend it. If you guys haven't seen it yet, uh, it's most likely up on the Vice YouTube channel as well. And it's on all cable systems if you guys have it. And that's Dark Side of the Ring collision in korea so we're going to take a quick commercial break and we come back me and jay are going to take a look at the brand new Zack snyder zombie flick army of the dead so stay tuned guys we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast hey everyone this is the jay with the what's real podcast here today for the unsung movie from churchill pictures in association with cut and run studios distributed by bayview entertainment The Unsung, in an old industrial town, a homeless man, Eric, roams the streets looking for a place to rest when he comes across a young girl, Samara, in danger. He runs to her aid and as a kind gesture, she leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Soon, he finds himself involved in the search for a serial killer while running afoul of the lead detective. The Unsung is now available to stream digitally to rent or own on Vimeo.com through a direct link at ChurchillPictures.com and now is available on Amazon Prime Video to rent or own. Go to ChurchillPictures.com, Vimeo.com, or AmazonPrimeVideo.com to check out The Unsung today. Hope lives in the shadows. On a warm summer's evening on a train bound for nowhere I met up with a gambler We were both too tired to sleep So we took turns of staring Out the window at the darkness 
the boredom overtook us and he began to speak he said we are back and it is time to get into the brand new Zack snyder flick army of the dead uh following a zombie outbreak in las vegas a group of mercenaries takes the ultimate gamble venturing into the quarantine zone to pull off the greatest heist ever attempted uh this movie stars dave bautista ella pernell uh omari hardwick uh anna de la guerra theo rossi uh tignataro um you know this one looked interesting to me now uh, when i say that i saw the preview for this or the trailer for it uh before i knew anything about it so i basically saw uh bautista in what looked like this epic ass zombie movie only to find out that Zack snyder is the director who i do not like uh i'll leave it at that i guess we could say this he directed the uh dawn of the dead remake which i do not like i think he's kind of a hacky director um I can't believe that he gets the money and the constant projects that he does, but I normally don't care because as of late, he's just been dabbling in the superhero world. And that's not a world that, as you know, if you listen to the show that I really care about, but once he kind of ventures into the world of action and horror, we're back into the stuff that I like again. And I figured I'd give it a chance. And I did. Now, don't worry guys. There's not going to be a ton of spoilers in this one. So we're not going to get into it. Um, I will say this, I watched this one kind of for Batista because I wanted to see how he'd be able to pull it off. And I thought that he did a pretty decent job. Uh, only problem with this movie is it's not what it claims to be. It's not nearly as epic as you think it would be. Um, one thing that I didn't even bring up to you, the Jay, and this drives me fucking crazy. So if you see the trailer, right, you see a bunch of the different characters, right? And they foreshadow a specific weapon one of the characters has. Do you know what I'm talking about, the J? With uh, Batista's? Nope. No, I'm not sure. The saw. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's that's Ghost they, from Power. Yeah, and they don't even fucking use it in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't. That's not even a spoiler. Like I'm. I'm that's that. It's irrelevant. It means nothing. Yeah, because um, we so we talked about. Um, my fault. I had the, the thing was coming no, go out ahead, too. Go ahead. Um, but no, we were talking ahead. about we were talking about Leo Rossi, and in this one, mm -hmm. I don't think you mentioned there's Theo Rossi from I Sons did. of Anarchy th fame. Okay, and he's the uh, the the main like kind of villain of the group basically because he's like a rapist and creeper. And he at one point is like fucking with the saw. And he's like, "Don't touch my saw," you know. But yeah, they never go back to it or use it. It's like weird yeah, as hell. And, and weirdly enough, here's another thing that pisses me off. So. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where they start to go on their heist and they go into this zone. And whenever they walk in there, there's just zombies, dead zombies everywhere. They're laying all over the place. And they say like, yeah, look at this. This is crazy. And they're like, yeah, but then one day it's going to rain and they're all going to come back to life. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah, very these weird. aren't the... These aren't the rules that have been set by prior films, and you haven't done anything to set your own rules, so what? Like, there's a lot of shit. And now, naturally, whenever you see something like this, you're like, oh, there's going to be a fucking big rain, and they're all going to come back to life, and there's going to be a... F nope, they don't come back to that either. Like, this is the stuff that I'm talking about when it comes to Zack Snyder. Like, he doesn't know how to properly convey ideas in a movie like you know that's called foreshadowing if you're not going to do anything with it 
then you don't have to do it. You can do something else or nothing at all. It doesn't matter. So little yeah. shit like that in a movie drives me fucking crazy. The other problem as well was paper thin characters. You know, Batista mm -hmm. was all right. And they had the thing with, of course, his estranged daughter. But overall, you know, I mean, it's a zombie movie. I'm not asking for, you know, like super deep Game of Thrones-esque, you know, character development. Well, but still, like, I don't the want J, it to be paper thin either, you know? Here, here's the thing. Going into this, right, didn't it look like it was this epic zombie fucking shoot 'em up Yeah. And it's not, right? No, I mean, for, for a movie like this, this epic and a crazy big blockbuster-esque zombie film for Netflix and, and the budgets they can give you, it was slow burns at times. Okay, so if they're going to go through the aspect of like not being the epic zombie movie and it's going to be more dialogue and character driven, you think the fucking characters would be pretty developed and good then, right? Exactly, yep. So you don't have to expect it to be fucking Citizen Kane. You just need it to be somewhat interesting. Maybe, you know, now I, I will say this. Out of all the characters, there was only one character that felt like, well, the person who wrote this knew what they were doing. And it was the fucking German safecracker dude. Everybody else was fucking terrible, boring, bland, and otherwise. He kind of had a little bit of spark to him. Like, probably the one of the few characters in the movie that you actually like or at least, like, get a kick out Cared of about. to some degree. Yeah. The dude, the Batista, the love interest character, was the worst fucking thing ever. Yeah. It was stupid as hell. It was just a lazy plot device. Like... It's, dude, there's a lot of that in this movie. Like, I can give you, like, say they did the love interest and nothing ever came of it, right? Okay, I can give you that one. That's your freebie, right? But when there's 19 things like that, then you're like, most of this movie doesn't even mean anything. Yeah, I, I liked, uh, of course, they had the one guy that sends him in, Tanaka. His, his man that he sent in, of course, was like the villain even bigger villain oh, yeah. than Theo Rossi of the group. So he was good because you hated him. He was a but, good heel. But here's the thing. Check this out, right? Shouldn't they have done it like, um, and now you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but just throw this out there. Did you have any doubt that he was like shady? Oh, yeah. It was all built up for him to have the worst death, which he pretty much did. But Not I a mean, spoiler because like, I don't want to tell anybody what happened. Well, and it's like, you know, Maybe maybe make the character look like he's there to help and then he kind of like might turn on people or something. Yeah, no, they, you they just, didn't do that at all. You just build him up as the dickhead from the very beginning and it's like, oh yeah, he's the dickhead. Yep. Like And then and then you uh, had the, you know, not to continue to shit all over this, but it is what it is. You had the the helicopter pilot role that was uh famously replacing Chris D'Elia, the comedian that got in trouble with reshoots with Tig Nataro. Oh, Tig Nataro, yeah. So that was weird. Because like, I dude, think you even mentioned to me, like you could tell a lot of the green screen kind of shots yeah, and stuff with her. She's good, but like everything she does is like, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Now at the time I didn't realize, because I didn't know that they had done that. So, but I'm like the whole movie, I'm like, why does every time they show her, she looks weird or the dialogue's weird or it just doesn't like something's wrong. And then yeah, you're like, oh, oh, they digitally replaced her. That's why you don't do shit. Like, dude, they would have been better off like work doing some weird workaround where the pilot's not even a fucking character in the movie because they could have done that. Because let me ask you a question, the Jay. They're building a team, right? So you got like the safe cracker and the fucking this person that, but like everybody has their little strength, right? 
they invite a pilot. Because it's probably easy to fly in there, right? To just go get the money out of the, the hotel or whatever, right? But you can't fly in. Right. But, but what's the plan once they get everything? To do what? There's the, the helicopter, the getaway helicopter that he tells them about on the building. So you can fly out, but you can't fly in? Like, what the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> there's so yeah. many stupid rules that don't yeah. mean anything. Like, this is like dickhead 101. Like, how to write a screenplay, but be really half-assed about it, but be very complicated at the same time. Like, Yeah, because then they did the scene dumb. with the hibernating zombies, and that was weird. And then they did, dumb. they have the rule of the stupid classic zombies, but then there's the quote unquote alpha zombies and there's like a zombie king and queen. And now and that whole thing. I can understand certain things. Like I can understand that the alphas are faster, maybe stronger, uh, maybe smarter. Right. But they can dodge bullets at two feet away from them. Like, I don't understand this. Like what the fuck is the point of this? Like, so there's, so you're saying, okay, we're facing zombies, right? Yeah. Well, not exactly. I mean, we're face, you're facing alpha zombies, and then there's the zombie tiger, but there's no other zombie animals except for the tiger, and then there's the dumb zombies, and then there's the other zombies who aren't the alphas and aren't the dumb ones that can dodge bullets, apparently, and then whenever they bite you, you become one right away, or in someone's case, several days after the fact. Like, None of this shit lines up with any sort of rules that they've established, that horror history's established. It's just all like pulling, you know, throwing the shit on the wall and seeing what fucking sticks. You're, you don't even set a set of fucking rules for your own movie. And honestly, dude, this is the most frustrating thing. When you watch this movie, it's pretty clear to me they don't even understand why people enjoy zombie stuff. They don't even have a clue, not at all, what makes zombie movies good, why people like them, what people want to see when they watch them. And that pisses me off because you just fucking made a zombie movie. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to it. What what did you like about the film, Hey Yo? Uh, okay, now this is weird. Now, watching the movie, I'm like, well, some of the makeup and shit's kind of cool. And little known fact that I just found this out, but years ago, I worked on a movie that never came out. It was from George Romero's son. It was called The Screening. And I worked with a dude named Kevin Kirkpatrick on there who did my makeup and shit for a scene. He did the fucking zombie makeup in this movie. Uh, that's cool. And I, and I didn't even know. I'd seen the movie before I even knew that. So yeah. I was like, dude, I was like, well, I didn't really care for it. But like literally the, some of the zombie makeup and shit's like the coolest thing. Like. The Alpha Queen, she looks fucking great. Like, that's a fantastic look. Uh, it could have been so much more than what it was because it yeah, looked really cool. But yeah, there was the some cool, movie. cool looking shit. I definitely like the Zombie King as well. I thought he was cool. Um, you know, nothing crazy, but he was he was cool. Uh, some good action set pieces. You know, there's some good action scenes and stuff like that when it did happen. But like I mentioned to you off the bat, at, uh, I was away this weekend with my family and we were going to watch it for like our Friday night movie. And I said to my brother-in-law, because I'm always so tired on Fridays, I'm like, man, we better start it soon because, you know, it's almost like 930. If it's like an hour and a half movie, it's going to go to 11. We pull it up. It's two hours and 25 minutes. <laughs> I was like, holy, Why? I did not expect that. Why did that. this movie... 
the J. Okay, you watched this whole movie. Why did this movie needed to be that long? It they didn't. Uh, like so I said, yeah, it was it was slow at points, and it's a freaking epic zombie movie. The, uh, okay, the, the zombie tiger was cool. I dug that. Like, you know, like it just didn't really do a lot for me in any regard at all. I was really disappointed. Dude, all he needed to do was just make it like a fun, stupid shoot 'em up zombie movie, and I think it would have been really cool. Give fucking like. Okay, here's something that's kind of lost, right? How the fuck does Batista not have at least one one-liner in this motherfucker? Nowhere. You know what I'm saying? Something. Yeah. Like, I felt like they didn't even let Batista show his personality in this, man. It was it was really kind of bummed bum me out. And <laughs> it just was kind of a lousy experience, man. Unfortunately. Well, we'll wrap so. it up for the tagline. The J has Army of the Dead, always bet on dead. All right, so Instead on the five-star rating scale, the J, what are you going with on this one? I give it two out of five on the What's Real film review scale. All right, so I'll give you a quick little review, and then I'll give you my five-star scale. Seriously, the movie's fucking pointless. Zack Snyder is and always will be a hack. It's such a goofy, soulless turd of a movie. One and a half stars. Sorry, guys. So uh, that's it for Army of the Dead. I hope you enjoyed it more than we enjoyed sitting through the movie itself. So we are going to take our very last commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. And the Jay is going to line up some goofs for us. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast, urging you to check out the Make Results Not Excuses clothing company today. In 2017, Marcus and Jason began their fitness journey. And after the first day, both men looked at each other and wondered what they got themselves into. They were out of shape and struggled to initially find the motivation to keep going. It was a fight. Like many things you want in life, they worked hard and eventually found themselves in the best shape of their lives. When they realized they achieved their goal, Mark looked at Jason and said, make results, not excuses. Being the fearless businessman that Jason was, he said, we need to put that on a shirt. And so the buzz began. They were so passionate about being a part of something positive and making something good out of a bad situation, whether it was fitness, business, health, lifestyle, or converting your daydreams into tangible visions, they didn't just love seeing people wearing it, they loved seeing people live by it. It's a movement, and one that reaches people in all situations. Unfortunately, Jason left us too young, and Mark is committed to carrying on his legacy. Tomorrow isn't promised, and if you wait until the last minute to achieve your goal, the opportunity may not be waiting for you. We promise to support the Make Results, Not Excuses community, and our community includes everybody. Let's make this happen today. Check us out at MakeResultsNotExcuses.com. Again, that's MakeResultsNotExcuses.com. So make results and not excuses starting now. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs Are Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. Hey the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? As we say, week in and week out, hey here on the What's Real Podcast, we are never, ever, as Jericho used to say, Ever. Ever. Lacking in goofs. And off the bat is uh, what we like to throw out there sometimes or the good viral videos we find. This one I found and sent to you. Hey, uh, this has a, a young teenage African-American kid climbing up on a pretty high, you know, roughly what, like 15 or so foot pavilion roof 
and doing basically uh, a backflip onto concrete, which he just lands it. Yeah, I was like nervous because like you sent me the video and I was like, I for sure, I'm like, this is going to be a dude with his goddamn, like his sternum's going to come out his ear when he lands this. Like, it's going to be awful. But no, dude just lands it. Like everybody, you know, appropriately goes nuts because like, see, I was going nuts watching the video. Jesus I was going to say it. I was just saying to you, man, like, I wish I had the balls to even try that. Yeah, it's kind of a pump up video because he, he like it's like he just had like the best tackle ever reaction when he lands and everybody does the classic like, you know, it goes nuts. But yeah, it's it's unreal. Um, you know, we'll have to post it on, on social media, but a really cool video of a, a kid doing a backflip off of pavilion and just landing dude, it. You, you, you know, the worst possible thing for that dude is now, though. What's that? It's fucking friends. Like, yo, dude, won't you flip off oh, yeah. that thing for so-and-so? Like, you know, she didn't see this. They didn't see So flip off this. It's like, dude, I'm not flipping off houses and shit. Fucking leave me alone. I did that shit once in a video. He's going to befriend super crazy because that's what it reminded me of. He's like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the uh, trajectory of how he does it. Yeah, it's like that slow kind of like, is he going to make it or isn't he? But he always makes it. Yep, of course, for those that don't know what our wrestling um, reference is, Super Crazy was an older ECW luchador wrestler, and he was known for just doing moonsaults, which is basically a backflip off a of high shit. So definitely correlates there. Yep. Uh, we hate to, to um, you know, hit anybody when they're down, hate you. And speaking of all the wrestling talk and dark side of the ring and, and the bios, I don't know if you caught this, though, as TMZ Sports uh, reports, our man. Buff the Stuff, Buff Bagwell, pro wrestling star, arrested, accused of hit and run and lying to cops. And he, he looks absolutely Dude, terrible in his mugshot. I would not be able to, like, I wouldn't recognize that dude if my life depended nope. on it. He looks nothing like yeah, he used he's to on, like on hard all. times. He's a former gigolo. I mean, it wasn't even ridiculously long ago that he was on that Showtime, <laughs> you know, Mel Hooker <laughs> series. <laughs> Dude, he's on hard times. He was a gigolo, <laughs> which is funnier because it's true. And, and you know what? Uh, the funny was having hard times. And you know, and you know what's so funny about you saying hard times? Did you see where he was arrested? You can't write it, dude. Did he get arrested in Cobb County, Georgia? Cobb County, Georgia. <laughs> Oh, you cannot write it. And then on top of everything else, we, we broke down the uh, the Dark Side of the Ring episode with Two Cold Scorpio, which is his former tag team partner. So full circle always on your podcast. You know what they say, don't you, the J? What's that? It's like when you come to Cobb County, you got to expect the law and order. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, just for this story, hey, Ed, ex-pro wrestling superstar Buff Bagwell, a staple in WCW for a decade, was arrested over the weekend in Cobb County, Georgia, for an alleged hit-and-run incident. TMZ uh, Sports obtained the booking report for the 51-year-old, real name Marcus Alexander Bagwell, showing he was arrested around 1.25 p.m. He's like doing this in the middle of the day. On May 22nd in Cobb County on alleged misdemeanor violations, including five counts, hit and run, giving false information to a law enforcement officer, open container, following too closely, licensed to be carried and exhibited on demand. (laughs) He got pulled over and the cops like, what's your name? And he's like, "Uh, Scotty, (laughs) Scotty Riggs. I'm an American male. (laughs) The American male. 
in, in the flesh. American nails. American Oh, that freaking nails, theme music. American. <laughs> Too much. Next up is a, another uh, sad thing here on Goofs or Goose. Hey, you know, uh, rest in peace to Alexa Bliss's pig. I did see that. I saw her. Dude, I, this is pretty bad. Like, I saw her, like, on social media, like, does anybody know any pig veterinarians? Because regular veterinarians don't really like treating them, and my vet won't see them in this condition. And I'm like, this is pretty bad if she's literally, like, on fucking Instagram. Like, can someone help me? I'm yeah, like, it's pretty Ew. sad. And then I saw that the pig is no longer. Yep. Uh, she reports that, allegedly, uh, claiming vets refuse to treat the pig uh her pet pig named larry steve hey ed uh, weird name there larry larry slash steve is the name of the pig oh, it is a pig i don't expect him to have a normal yeah name. he was too big of a pig so you know sad day rest <laughs> in peace to larry steve bliss the pig uh, moving on because we always go full circle here on Goose and Goose and the What Real Podcast. What's Real Podcast in El Paso, in El Paso Zoo, a woman jumped into a spider monkey pen and has since been fired from her job as a litigation assistant. <laughs> oh, fucking people. Why did she jump in the To pit? play with the spider monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> the Lovett Law Firm in El Paso told KVIA they recognized the woman Lucy Ray as one of their employees at the firm's personal injury division and fired her on the spot after identifying her as the trespasser at the zoo. They do not condone her actions. Transa- translation, she embarrassed the firm, so she's got to go. Jesus Christ. Like, dude, what? Like, you can't even go to the zoo and jump in the spider monkey pen anymore without losing your fucking yeah, job. Yeah, well, once again, during COVID. Like, I'm not saying the spider monkeys are going to give her COVID, but, like, we got a pandemic going on. <laughs> you're jumping in oh, that's, monkey pens. Well, you're assuming that these spider monkeys have not been vaccinated, <laughs> Jay. That's a mighty strange leap to that take. That is a big leap. Jesus Dude, I'm losing. Uh, I know this is this is it. Hey, we'll wrap it up. I'm taking it home. The last one for episode 72's Goofs or Goofs as a missing man was found dead inside a Stegosaurus. Um, I have so many questions. (laughs) The body of a missing man in Spain has been found inside a Stegosaurus. He was found lodged upside down inside the leg of the hollow sculpture. The 40-year-old was discovered dead, crammed into the leg of a dinosaur sculpture outside a cinema in Barcelona, La Vanguardia reported. I'm pissed off. They seriously just let my number one fucking body disposal method out the bag. (laughs) I used to always stuff murdered victims into giant dinosaurs. That's like... That's it. I heard uh, the producer at Tammy and the T Rex is in jail because they found 35 bodies inside the animatronic. Yeah. <laughs> the grim discovery was made by a father and son who regularly play in the area of Santa Colomala de Gramenet, who investigated after noticing a foul smell. Peering through a crack, they spotted what looked like a human leg. Uh, emergency services cut open a hole in the hollow paper mache statue and found the unfortunate victim. Uh, it, they thought he was homeless, but it soon emerged he had been reported missing by his family hours earlier. An autopsy will be carried out to determine exactly how he died, but police do not su- suspect foul play. Hey, 
Wait, what? <laughs> they were working on the hypothesis that he somehow dropped his phone through a hole the day before and tried to climb inside to retrieve it and tumbled in upside down and became trapped in a freak accident inside okay. the Stegosaurus. That actually makes sense, because I was about to say, if this is a murder victim, can you imagine the murderer that, number one, will murder someone, and number two, has zero qualms about being like, I'm going to drag this body over to this park, and I'll put it in a stegosaurus, and I'm going to spend three and a half hours doing the appropriate paper mache to cover the whole fucking thing back up again, and no one saw anything. Yeah, and then... Like, you wouldn't notice, like, why is this dude paper mache in this yeah and then Juan and uh, his son El Guapo are like playing and it's like daddy it smells like a corpse you know like mind your business let's go we're going to like wait a minute it does smell like a corpse but yeah so (laughs) like I thought you were being sarcastic but it does Uh, it smells like the first time I ever heard of a person being killed by a stegosaurus statue but what can you say? You heard it here first. <laughs> you first. Between, like I said, to my <laughs> bro from another mo, hey, uh, between Jeez. landing crazy backflips to Buff Bagwell getting arrested in Co- Cobb County, Georgia, to a <laughs> woman partying with spider monkeys, to rest in peace, to Alexa Bliss's pig, and a man found dead in a stegosaurus. Goofs are goofs. goofs. Really are goofs. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Wow. Wow. So that's it this week, guys. Hope you enjoyed episode 72. Uh, we're pretty much done here. A uh, little quick reminder. If you guys are listening on iTunes, please drop us a five-star review. really helps out the show. gets more eyes and ears on the podcast. And, of course, you can listen to us on all your favorite podcasting platforms each and every week, like Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and every week on churchofpictures.com. If you have anything you'd like to add to the show, feel free to send us an email. I implore you. I dare you to. You cowards. You'll never do it. Uh, send us an email at what's real pod at gmail.com. So the J, you're revving it up. Take revving it, it up like I'm about to do a backflip off my house and land it. Hey, you know, pumped up, man. It was another great episode. 72, an epic, epic episode. We just broke the two and a half hour mark. So, you know, my back's all wet with sweat, but that's why I'm vascular, veiny, and uh, delirious at this juncture. Love the show. As I always shout out our man, our producer, the wizard behind the boards, Cam. Thanks for all thanks for all your hard work, Cam. 16K sound each and every week. I love it. Love spending the time with you. Hey, you know, it was another epic episode. Had a blast. As I say, leading the charge to all our peeps out there. If you're hearing my voice right now, stay safe and healthy out there. You'll hear the J next week. And that is it for us here on episode 72. The J, my brother from another mother. Shout out to you, brothers. Nobody else I'd rather do it with each and every week as only we can do. And a shout out to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts into the show, making us sound so great each and every week. And we all know nobody beats the whiz. So that is it, guys. We'll see you next week for episode 73. So that is all. We will see you. Thanks for listening and all that fun stuff. So uh, stay safe, stay healthy, get vaccinated, and let's go Knicks. See you next week right here on the What's Real Podcast. What's real?